You're listening to Grant Edwards, 88.1 FM, The Wireless, The World at Five. That's right. It's a very strange act of uh, masochism, really, and an act of masochism carried out by people who don't seem to know anything. I mean, people talk about the British monarchy having to apologize for slavery. It was King George III who signed the Anti-Slavery Act into law in 1807. Prince Albert gave one of the most extraordinary anti-slavery addresses when the British were still policing the anti-slave trade on the high seas in 1840 to the Anti-Slavery League in London. All of this was addressed 200 years ago. And today, unfortunately, there's a kind of new type of malcontent, and usually also a huckster to boot, who just decides that uh, none of this happened. Usually it's because they don't know it happened. And as a result, they look at our history and everything in our country, right up to just, you know, innocent pastimes like cricket, and they decide to name everything as guilty. And, you know, you could do this to everyone and to everything, but most civilizations and cultures cultures don't behave like this because most of them aren't just masochistic and uh, so self-hating. All right. What Douglas Murray just said was absolutely true. They just want to complain about all the things that happen in this country as if every other country were so good and they never engaged in acts of slavery either when majority, if not all, of the human race engaged in this type of behavior. But people want to complain, especially the liberals and the leftists in the most civilized countries in the world. They seem to want to complain about something that's really not to be complained about. When they're living fantastic lives, they just want to find something to always complain about. And Douglas Murray was spot on in what he just said. Paula, your response to that? I actually agree with uh, Douglas about the fact that we don't know enough. He's absolutely right. We don't know enough. And it's important that we do. But part of the knowledge is also understanding the hurt and pain that were caused, not just about the good things. It's not just about the cherry picking. And wrongs are not about being masochistic. Saying sorry is not a bad thing. Saying sorry is actually a very empowering thing to do. Why does it matter that a bunch of royals now get forced into issuing grovelling apologies? Who cares? How does it change anything? It doesn't doesn't do anything, in my estimation, to to impact... What Peter said is true as well. What does apologising change? All they want to do is just virtue signal. That's all it is. Because once they do apologise, they're still going to ask for more. It's just virtue signalling and wanting to be in the victim Olympics and I'm oppressed and we're all oppressed and we need handouts is all it is. Impact on current slavery, where it exists around the world, mm. it doesn't really make any difference to institutional racism, as we've seen in, in certain parts of society. I don't know what difference it makes. It might make people feel a bit better to see a royal grovelling, but so what? See, I, I don't agree with you. Surprise, surprise. I do think it makes a difference. I do think it makes a difference that people, people in power are heard to acknowledge pain and hurt. I do think it's important that people in power have uh, taken the time... Whose pain and hurt are you talking about? It's It's not people living today. These are going back hundreds of years in some cases, these crimes of slavery and so on. We all agree it was outrageous. It's been debated 
you know, really year after year after year. We all know this. I don't think that people have a lack of knowledge. And I'm not quite sure where the apology tour ends. What's, what's the end game here? So the end game is about the ability to understand the true history, not just the part of history that we have been taught. And that is the difficulty. So you're talking about who's the apology for? Well, the apology is for me. The apology is for those who have suffered. The apology is for those who continue to struggle through colonialism and through slavery. And I do think that it's important that royalty are coming forward and saying, we apologise for the part that we... All right, so, so, so is, that it? Is, that, is that enough? When is enough enough? If we well, all I say sorry know. to... Ask, the, hang on, hang on. the hang British on. government, when is enough enough? To, oh, pe- to repay, when, to compensate slavery. So if we that's exactly what I was saying. When is enough enough? Because as I said, what they will do is the apology would be said and they will still complain. They will find something else to complain about because they're people who are just have the character of oppression and they always want to be oppressed regardless of what they are given. We will say sorry when today. Well, that's my question to you, and, and you're not well, answering well, it. Well, when my point is, if we all say, good. if we all say sorry today, it was terrible, which we all know. Yeah. Can we then say, right, that's done? We're going to look forwards. We're yes. going to be positive. We're yes. going to celebrate our achievements. Yes learn from our failures Absolutely. and we're done with apologising. Absolutely. And so how are we going to learn from our failures if we do not understand what we did wrong? You learn from your failures because that's what we're doing at the moment. The sort of report how you had you from How do you learn the, from your failures you, if you don't report, know what you did wrong? If be, you refuse to because, accept that you did because wrong? Because the, the cricket board, the ECB, they've just produced a report. They've reported. Some of it was good. Some of it you can criticise or question. The point is we've learned from that. We're moving on. We're celebrating. We're being positive. Otherwise, how have it, we learned I'll tell you what it does. It, how it, have we learned it depresses from it? everybody. It leads to a well, positive what it, yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think what it does, I want to bring in Lee Greenwood here, who's a, a big country star America, and he wrote God Bless the USA, one of the great anthems celebrating the United States. It's July 4th. Obviously, uh, as I said at the start here, Lee, we don't celebrate it with quite such enthusiasm, this side of the pond. We sort of take a view that Mad King George dropped the ball a bit, but I'm happy for my American friends that you have this day to celebrate. Uh, You wrote this great uh, anthem, really, for your country. Uh, Can we be proud of our country anymore, or is this kind of this desire to feel this terrible regret about everything and apology for everything, does that mar the pride? How do you feel? Well, I'm gonna go out on a limb here and just say the people that I run with and talk to, and I believe me, I tour across America all the time. We do 140, 50 days a year, every doghouse, outhouse, and roundhouse. And I talk to the American public. They listen to what I say, listen to what I sing. I happen to be a country music performer, but I was born in California, spent 20 years in Nevada. I live in the South now. And I wrote this song because it was for unity. It's a unity and for military sacrifice. And yeah, America started as an interesting uh, expedition. Uh, and then an experiment and we fought it out we fought each other in the civil war and said okay we're gonna bury the hatchet here the trouble is as we move forward a lot of people try to change history i'm okay with history i'm okay with apologizing for what happened back then but i agree with you that was back then let's move forward let's move on past that and let's not change history and try to change what happened yeah i completely agree um douglas the problem is we've forgotten how to be genuinely proud of our great countries, both America and the United Kingdom, two of the greatest countries in the world. It's almost like every day now, somebody somewhere, normally on the left, the woke left, is queuing up to find a reason to hate the countries and their histories. 
That's just what the left and the liberals are all about. They'll complain till their heart faces go red. They just want to complain and be victims of, of oppression is all it is. But they will always stay in the countries that they so say they hate. They won't move countries. They won't move to the countries that they say are better than the countries that they're living in. They'll just keep complaining as they usually do. Well, it's it's a kind of grievance competition. Your guest earlier just tried to engage in it. I don't know what hurt she believes she's had from slavery. Uh, all of this was addressed two centuries ago. Everything has consequences. All history has consequences and ramifications. But, you know, if we were to play this fairly, we would at least look at all of the countries around the world that engaged in the slave trade who are simply not interested in any form of reparations, the, the, the Ottoman Empire, all the Arab countries, countries who not just traded far more slaves than across the Atlantic, but castrated all the men so that there wouldn't be any more African slaves in, uh, after them. They worked them to the bone. I see no interest across Africa in paying reparations for selling their brother and sister Africans into slavery or for working them to the bone to the present day. There is slavery across Africa today. In fact, there are more slaves in the world today than there were at the height of the transatlantic slave trade. So some of us are simply a bit bored of hearing people ripping at closed wounds and then crying about their hurt or their presumed hurt, because everybody could do this. A million Europeans were stolen by North Africans over the course of decades of the North African Barbary pirate slave trade. Where would you end if you did that? The answer is you couldn't end, because nobody is alive who has actually suffered the hurt, and nobody is alive who did the wrong. And I'd make one other point, if I may. It's always the countries that people want to come to who are put through this struggle session. Britain, like America and France, are among the, are the most desired destinations for migrants worldwide and have been for centuries. Why is that? It's not because we're racist. It's because we're better. It's because we're good. It's because when we see racism, we actually call it out and recognize it as a sin. Try finding that across Africa. Try finding that across the Middle East or in China. Nobody would hear. So what we have is a situation where the more virtuous countries are presented as the worst countries. It's sick and most of us are tired of it. And what Douglas Murray just did there was absolute fact. He, uh, as I know, she's most likely not going to respond to anything he said. And what he said was true. If we wanted to engage in this, every country can engage in the same thing that she's engaging in. And where will it stop? Where do we begin? Where do we look to say this is the starting point and this is the end point? We won't be able to do it. But for some reason, it's always the countries, as I said, the most privileged ones that have the people who always want to complain. Thank you, Douglas. I am so sorry that Douglas is bored by the pain that has come that's not what he said. through slavery. He didn't say... He, I am so But what you're doing there... What you're not, doing, yeah, but hang on, Paula. Not Paula, you're being... This is what I mean by people, the left and the liberals, just never engage in the facts. He said he's bored of people like her complaining about the things that have already been fixed. And she, of course, diverts to a totally different thing, which is not what he even said. Being very disingenuous. That's not I what don't he said. The viewers aren't stupid. They know, they know exactly what he said. He's not I saying he's bored by the pain. He's saying, and I think it's a perfectly valid point. The pain that people who are alive today are claiming they're suffering mm. for what happened two or three hundred years is not a, it's not a real pain. They're not no. the ones who suffered what was going on two or three hundred years ago. 
So in terms of justice for all, I mean, I think we'd all agree that... Well, I'm not suffering from when the Normans invaded this country. I'm not suffering from what my ancestors went through. I noticed that I've not been allowed to respond. Or from the Romans. In other words, where where do you take this? I mean, should I now be feeling pain from what the Romans did to this country? In terms of slavery, I can take it to 2015 when the slave owners were were compensated by the Mm. government. So I can take it to that extent. But where does your personal pain come? And I can say to you, and I can say to you, that I don't think that apologising is a bad thing. I think that apologising for a wrong is a good thing. I think that the um, Dutch royal family have done a fantastic fantastic thing in acknowledging I think what, make, has, all right. what has gone okay, wrong I, hear you, but in I honestly think it'll make no difference at all. That's all the left and the liberals want to do. They just want a virtue signal, complain about how oppressed they are, continue to talk and not fix anything. And that's all it is. But anyway, that was another video, another reaction. As I usually say, if you guys enjoyed the video, please like the video as much as possible. Comment down below. Let's get a discussion going down below. I'll reply to as many comments as possible. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at guy. And I am out. You're listening to Grant Edwards. 88.1 FM. The Wireless. The World at 5. Uh, excuse me, uh, Sarah? Oh my God, Tom! <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? It's good to see you. Where have you been? I moved to St. Louis and then I came back here. Oh my gosh, it's so good to see you. So how long have you been back in town? I've been back three weeks now. I live right in the area. Oh my. Better give you a hug. What are you doing here? Oh, just shopping. Shopping for food? Yeah. Oh, me too. Mm. Oh, mm. so good to see you. It's good to see you. Oh, okay. Oh. Mm. Okay, my next hug. a nice hug? Yeah, but my next hurting. I now. love giving hugs. Okay, let go mm. now. Especially talk. to my old good friend. Okay, yeah, now my next hurting. My best breathe. old friend, Sarah. Oh, okay, goodbye. Mm. Oh, oh, your back like, feels so oh, good. Please. Okay, let go now. Woo. Okay, Give me now we're letting go. Mm. See, now this is me pushing mm. you away. On, okay, now we're going. Now we're going. Bye-bye. Last three to five seconds. Any longer can cause back pain, neck pain, arthritis, and a general creepy feeling. For more information, ask your doctor. A very good morning from me, Katie Hopkins, here live in Rome ahead of my radio show at TNT that I do at nine o'clock on weekdays. Turns out that TNT is a radio station that you can trust in a time when others don't seem so trustworthy. What a glorious thing it is that the word has been trending all weekend on Twitter. If you don't know what is, maybe go to the Urban Dictionary. A few things on this story. Number one, absolute kudos to The Sun for breaking this, for keeping it, for sitting on it, of having the timing that they've had. I think it's absolute genius and The Sun should be applauded. Number two, the BBC are sweating like ducks who have lost their feathers and are about to be rogered up the And as for people getting upset that people are guessing, it's them. What do you expect people to do if you tell them this has happened to a certain presenter who's paid six figures by the British taxpayer? What do you expect them to do? And then finally, how horrible would it be for you to have so lost so many ordinary people around the UK that they think it's you? How would it feel to be that person that is so disliked by so many people They actively think it's you. I mean, I just wouldn't want to be that. But then again, I'm one of the presenters that isn't allowed to speak in the UK because 
I'm the problem. Ah, oh, yes. My mother used to say, you know, sometimes my love, all you have to do is wait. And so that seems to be perfectly true. I'll see you at nine o'clock uh, at tntradio.live. So this year we decide to break with tradition and go round to our Marilyn's for Christmas. Big mistake. She normally comes round to ours, but this year she don't want to drive. Surprise, surprise. She's lost her confidence behind the wheel since she put on all that weight and her Stelios has got a driving ban. Well, he's a Greek. So she says, could we go round to theirs? I was against it from the get-go. Bear in mind, they used to live in Brighouse. Now they've moved to Jewsbury. That's an extra 45 minutes driving, for yours truly. Anyway, we get there, and the music's blaring. Their son's one of them hoodies. So we go in, and the first thing we do is exchange Christmas gifts. We got them one of those griddle pans. £23.99. And they got us... A book. Eight ninety-nine tops. Anyway, we're having a glass of wine. We're already fifteen quid down on the day. Then she drops the bombshell. Listen to this. She says they've been on one of them French cookery courses. Give me flaming strength. She says for our Christmas dinner. Wait for it. They've cooked. What were it called? Filet de Salmon. Avec potatoes dauphinoise. Fish and chips, basically. No turkey. This is in Dewsbury. The dirty bastards. Christmas Day. No turkey. Turkey. There was none. It's your turkey dinner. Without the turkey. Christmas dinner. Ruined. And we're still 15 quid down. Some things you do not change. And Christmas Day is one of them. The dirty, evil, turkey-dodging bastard. You're listening to Grant Edwards. 88.1 FM, The Wireless, The World at Five. You heard Klausy McSchwab's first two records. Back, seems back, all night. You know nothing and be happy. But this one is going to make your modified mRNA tingle. Time Lies presents Greatest Schwab's, Volume 15. A new world order in music. One, two, three, four, five. All the unvaccinated are still alive. A little bit of Pfizer in my arm. A little bit of BioNTech does no harm. A little Johnson Johnson does the trick. A little AstraZeneca so you don't get sick. It's booster number five. Let's talk about Vax, baby. Let's talk about Doc Fauci. Let's talk about all the weird and counter side effects, maybe. Let's talk about Vax. Let's talk about Vax. Come and take the seven shots, the seven shots. This a little luck you get. My, 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 oh! My, 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 myocarditis. You won't have to be rich. With CBDC, you'll have all you need The central currency We just take your extra wealth and your cash 
And you can walk 500 steps, but not a single step more until the curfew activates and robot cops stand at your door. Just a small town boy thinking, genetically modified soy. This ensures he doesn't co-create. Please stop breeding. Stop the breeding. We are almost nine billion people. Please stop breeding right now. Feed and start the Pfizer. We just make you take it even if you hate it. Greatest Schwab's, Volume 15. Now available on Spotify and MRN Apple Music. All the caterpillar tastes like chicken in vine. And mealworm tastes just like a steak. Ain't nothing better than a deep fried butterfly. Or centipede protein shake. Be sure to check the cricket mag nuggets out. They're almost as crunchy as worms. And chew your drink as hopper sandwich extra loud. Cause this is all you get. I don't care who you are, where you're from. Don't care what you want, you will eat a box. what I need. I ordered Willie magazines. The new Willie means fun and shorable. One of the questions I get asked a lot is whether I support terrain theory. Like most doctors, I was trained to focus on germ theory. In fact, terrain theory was not something I recall ever being mentioned in medical school or on the hospital rounds when I first started practicing. However, in early 2020, when the corona narrative started making less and less sense to me, I realized that germ theory had some major inconsistencies. I did my own research and my journey led me to the virus mania team and a paradigm shift in my thinking. This video will be a broad overview of the two schools of thought and whether we can learn something from both. Firstly, you might ask, why is it important whether people believe in germ theory or terrain theory? Shouldn't people just be able to make up their own minds? Definitely. On a philosophical and spiritual level, I'm completely at peace with that and it's the best way to keep a healthy discussion going. However, as should have been apparent by the year 2020, germ theory has captured the minds of much of the medical industry and policymakers, while terrain theory gets pushed to the side. In Virus Mania, we state that the pharmaceutical companies and top scientists rake in enormous sums of money by attacking germs, and the media boosts its audience ratings and circulations with sensationalized reporting. Individuals pay the highest price of all without getting what they deserve and need most to maintain health. Enlightenment about the real causes and true necessities for prevention and cure of their illnesses. So what is germ theory and how did it come about? 
In the middle of the 19th century, there were incredible advances in hard sciences such as chemistry and physics, and it put the population under a spell with these new descriptions of very specific phenomena. Unfortunately, this thought pattern of specificity, that very particular chemical or physical phenomena have very specific causes, was simply transferred to the medical sciences. It seems that for many scientists, very little thought was given as to whether it was valid to apply these theories to a completely different field. Germ theory states that pathogenic microorganisms invade hosts, such as humans, where they multiply and cause a specific disease, which may then be transmissible to other hosts. The dogma of a single cause for disease was decisively shaped by microbiology, which became predominant at the end of the 19th century, with proponents such as Louis Pasteur declaring specific microorganisms to be the sole cause of very definite diseases. As American sociology professor Stephen Epstein has written with regards to the microbe theory, the cornerstone was laid for modern biomedicine's basic formula with its monocausal microbial starting point and its search for magic bullets. One disease, one cause, one cure. Now if we go to trusty old Wikipedia, the germ theory of disease page states that it is the currently accepted scientific theory for many diseases. However, curiously, the page has no criticism section, but at the bottom of the page there is a link to Wikipedia's germ theory denialism page. Well, as we know, the term denialism usually means someone probably doesn't want you looking into this. Amusingly, on the germ theory page, they include Cox postulates as evidence, but this is quickly followed by the excuses that you don't really need to fulfill the postulates to satisfy germ theory. I guess that's when the attempts to infect healthy hosts or demonstrate transmissibility of diseases completely failed, or when many of Pasteur's experiments were later found to be fraudulent. Anyway, the debate about whether germ theory is a satisfactory explanation for disease has been going on for quite some time. The following piece by Professor H.C. Bastian appeared in the British Medical Journal in 1875, where he raised his concerns about the rising acceptance of germ theory. Keep in mind that this was written over 130 years ago, so the science was at a much earlier stage. However, there was already enough knowledge for Bastian to point out that the alleged causes of disease, microorganisms, may be actually introduced into the blood vessels of lower animals by thousands without producing any deleterious effects in a large proportion of the cases. Bacteria, if not actually to be found within the blood vessels of healthy persons, do nevertheless habitually exist in so many parts of the body in every human being and in so many of the lower animals as to make it almost inconceivable that these organisms can be causes of disease. Bacteria are the creatures of circumstance and modifiable to an extraordinary degree. The last position is even admitted by Professors Sanderson and Lister. The former acknowledges that they are the lowest organisms and that they are much more under the influence of the conditions under which they originate and are developed than organisms of any other class. In his paper, you'll note that Bastian never denies the association of bacteria and diseased tissue. However, he states that this condition does not come about 
by bacteria invading healthy tissue and causing disease. On the contrary, the tissue is already unhealthy and the changed conditions allow the bacteria to take the upper hand, but they certainly don't instigate the disease themselves. At the time of birth, we can see that the germ theory already runs into a bit of a problem. Just a few hours after arrival, all of a newborn baby's mucous membranes have already been colonized by bacteria, which perform important protective functions. Without these colonies of billions of germs, the infant, just like the adult, could not survive. But key proponents of germ theory, such as Louis Pasteur, believed that bacteria should not be found in a perfectly healthy body, and that microbes floating through the air were responsible for diseases. Flaws in Pasteur's theories were shown long ago in the first half of the 20th century by experiments in which animals were kept completely germ-free. Their birth even took place by caesarean section, and then they were locked in microbe-free cages and given sterile food. After a few days, all the animals were dead. So we have a situation where billions of microbes are inside us and all over us and have been proven to be essential for life. A team led by Jeremy Nicholson remarked in 2004 that humans can be considered superorganisms with an internal ecosystem of diverse symbiotic microbiota and parasites that have interactive metabolic processes. Additionally, our gut is estimated to contain around one kilogram or over two pounds of microorganisms. It makes you wonder how much of a healthy human body is human and how much is foreign. Maybe these terms are not actually appropriate at all. And that's why we have another much less known way of thinking, known as terrain theory. Microbes are found in an environment, or terrain, and the microbe is nothing. The terrain is everything, is the phrase attributed to Claude Bernard, one of the best known representatives of a holistic approach to health. Terrain theory, which is also known as cellular theory, holds that the body provides the environment or terrain for microorganisms. If the body is healthy, it remains in balance with the microorganisms that colonize it. If the body is compromised, those same microorganisms respond to the environmental changes and cause what we know as disease, but they are not invasive or transmissible in the sense of germ theory. When I worked on the surgical wards, one of the most difficult things to treat was skin ulcers which formed due to compromised blood flow, particularly in the lower leg. Now frequently they would become infected and we would take swabs of the tissue to see which bugs the lab could identify. Much of the time they would find Staphylococcus aureus and perhaps some antibiotic treatment would be prescribed. However, Staphylococcus aureus is found on the skin of many people and most of the time it has no negative effects for them at all. The bacteria does not prey on healthy humans as such. It only becomes a problem when the person's terrain is already compromised. In the case of ulcers, the skin is dying and the already present microbes detect the new conditions, change their function and proliferate. As general practitioner Johan Leubner says, under close observation of disease progression, particularly in infected processes, damage to the organism occurs at the beginning of the disease and only afterwards the bacterial activity begins. Everyone can observe this in himself. If we put dirt into a fresh wound, other bacteria appear as well. After the penetration of a foreign body, very specific germs appear which after removal or release 
go away on their own and do not continue to populate us. If we damage our respiratory mucous membranes through hypothermia, then those bacteria accordingly appear, which depending on the hypothermia's acuteness and length and the affected individual's condition, can break down the affected cells and lead to expulsion. Qatar. You may have heard the medical term opportunistic infection, which usually refers to an infection that develops because of a weakened immune system, for example, due to malnutrition, excessive stress, a disrupted microbiome, steroid administration and chemotherapy. However, this seems to be a concession to terrain theory. Indeed, I've not been able to establish where the definition of opportunistic infection actually starts and finishes. Terrain theorists would argue that every infection is opportunistic and thus the term is redundant. I searched to find the origins of the term opportunistic and the Oxford English Dictionary lists this 1955 paper in Scientific American, Second Thoughts on the Germ Theory, as its earliest example in medical literature. Microbiologist and humanist René Debeau wrote, Was it not possible, they argued, that bacteria were only the secondary cause of disease? Opportunistic invaders of tissues already weakened by crumbling defences. Interestingly, Debeau positions himself somewhere between germ and terrain theory, and in the article states, a new look at the biological formulation of the germ theory seems warranted. Something most doctors today won't realise when using the term is that Debeau coined the term opportunistic when describing terrain theory. That's all very well, you might say, but surely we should be scared of some dangerous microorganisms. Definitely. You don't want parasitic protozoans such as the ones associated with malaria in your blood, but as that results from an insect bite, it bypasses our usual systems and is not the typical way we encounter microbes. In day-to-day -day life in developed countries, I think there is very little to worry about in terms of predatory microbes. They don't jump out at healthy people unexpectedly. In this sense, I think that pathogenic microbes are the exception rather than the rule. Every day we breathe in and swallow all sorts of microbes and no illness results from it. There are deadly diseases such as anthrax where the spores of the bacillus can be fatal if inhaled, but at about one or two cases per year in the US, this could hardly be considered a significant health issue. Outside of weaponized anthrax made by unnaturally concentrating the spores, it makes you suspect that in nature, many people inhale the spores without getting sick. Additionally, anthrax is not contagious in that an infected person cannot usually pass it on to others. Essentially, if you have good nutrition, normal body weight, clean water and a non-polluted environment, microbes are your friends rather than foes. So, there you have it, a brief overview of germ theory and terrain theory. Over to you for your thoughts and keeping the conversation going in the comments. I've found that you can learn a lot reading material from both schools of thought, but as we outline in Virus Mania, germ theory has spun out of control due to misplaced fears about microbes and the vested interests from the medical pharmaceutical industrial complex. Personally, I suspect that focusing on germ theory can lead people to be fearful and anxious with a habit of externalizing their health and a view that medicine must fix them. They worry about catching disease from others and can even advocate coercive measures against fellow humans who they perceive as threats. 
On the other hand, I find terrain theory advocates to be more at peace with the environment in a belief that they themselves are the key to their health. They don't have much faith in putting many pharmaceuticals in their body and focus more on aspects such as nutritional and spiritual well-being. You may have seen a meme in circulation that I find effective on several levels. Obviously, it's about physical health, but I think it also encapsulates the psychological and social themes I've just mentioned. I wonder from a psychological perspective if Jordan Peterson would agree that cleaning the tank, or as he would say, cleaning your room, has benefits beyond that which are immediately apparent. Maybe the result is helpful on multiple levels of health. In any case, I'm going to keep my tank, or at least my room, clean. <laughs> I'd like to finish with a quote from Antoine Bichon, who is often considered as Louis Pasteur's chief rival of that era. Unfortunately for Bichon, his ideas and philosophy were not useful for political players in the nascent drug industry, so unlike Pasteur, he doesn't get a mention in most textbooks. However, his spirit reaches us today in these immortalized words. Nothing is lost. Nothing is created, all is transformed. Nothing is the prey of death, all is the prey of life. On another note, thank you to those of you who have recently purchased Virus Mania. In New Zealand, we have been selling them like hotcakes and unfortunately I'm only down to my last three books and the top one's mine. So <laughs> Uh, if you want another one, please let me know. I'll let you know in the description below how to contact me. Uh, and there will be about a two-week waiting list for new orders. To help sustain my channel in this time of censorship, please support my work on Subscribestar. Link is in the description. You're listening to Grant Edwards. 88.1 FM. The Wireless. The World at 5 sooner you get accustomed to it, or else, the better. The World Bank itself has recently indicated that 222 million people are already experiencing the threat of starvation, described oh so nicely as food insecurity. The communists managed to kill 100 million in the last century with their utopian delusions. We've barely begun to implement the save the planet nightmare, and we've already placed twice that number at risk. We are told an emergency confronts us, the climate crisis. The solution? The masses will have to tighten their belts to forestall an even worse future catastrophe. The elite academics, think tanks, and corporate consultants, and the politicians who subsidize their intellectual pretensions will not be particularly affected by such tightening, privileged as they are. But the actual poor? To such an elite, they must be sacrificed now to save tomorrow's hypothetical poor. And 222 million people is no doubt an underestimate. As the food insecurity gets more severe, more countries will place restrictions on food exports that will harm the international supply lines we all depend on. Then, when the consequences of that manifest themselves, increasingly desperate politicians will begin to nationalize and centralize food distribution, as the French and Germans have already done on the energy front, and cut their farmers off at the needs. 
who will in turn stop growing food, not out of spite, but because of dire economic impossibility. Then we will have engendered the kind of feedback loop that can really spiral out of control. It will be poor people who die first, at least. But as we have all been taught by the malevolent eco-moralizers, the planet has too many people on it anyway. Think about this while you shiver all too soon in your cold, damp, and increasingly expensive and now substandard lodgings. You and your family may well have been deemed an expendable excess. Food for thought. This is simply not acceptable. If you dare to claim the moral high ground while serving the cause of starvation, then, by my reckoning, you've placed yourself firmly in the enemy camp and you richly deserve whatever is coming your way. In the psychological and educational arenas, too, we demoralize young people, feeding them a constant diet of concretized apocalypse, focusing particularly on tempering or even obliviating the laudable ambition of boys, hectoring them into believing that their virtue is nothing but the force that oppresses the innocent and despoils the virginal planet. And if that doesn't work, and it does, then there's always the castration awaiting the gender dysphoric. And you oppose such initiatives at substantial personal risk. But we can reassure ourselves with the fact that a beneficent government is going to set up warm spots in public libraries and museums this winter so that freezing, starving old people can huddle together to keep warm while their grandchildren cough up their lungs in their frigid, damp, and moldy flats. In such circumstances, in the face of such mandatory privations and manipulations, it's obvious that the last thing our tyrannical, idiot, panicked, virtue-signaling governments should be doing is directing their demented attention toward regulating what people serve at their tables. But because meat has also been deemed yet something else that is destroying the planet, the woke narcissists of compassion are already insisting that people eat less of it. Plants and bugs for you and your children, peasants. And the sooner you get accustomed to it, or else, the better. Let's turn our attention to the claim that animal husbandry and the meat it produces cheaply enough for everyone to afford is unsustainable. For a moment, because we haven't yet dispensed with enough moralizing and authoritarian stupidity. Remember what happened the last time that government agencies applied their tender mercy to determining what the people they served should consume? We were offered the much vaunted food pyramid, telling us to eat six to 11 servings of grains and carbohydrates a day, with protein and fat at the pinnacle, something to be indulged in with comparative rarity, if indeed necessary at all. That all turned out to be wrong, and not just a little wrong, but so wrong that it might as well have been not just wrong, but a veritable anti-truth, something as wrong as it could possibly get. The food pyramid was brought into being not least by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, that is, by marketers, not scientists or nutritionists, with no shortage whatsoever of lobby efforts by those whose products ended up being promoted. 
the dietary recommendation to prioritize carbohydrates produced a veritable epidemic of obesity and diabetes, resulting in what has been deemed by reliable researchers as one of the worst public health disasters of all time, dooming almost the entire Western population to a lifetime of catastrophic chronic health problems. So that's the false adventure sold to young kids. It's like, well, the planet's going to hell in a handbasket. That's the claim. It's like, yeah, yeah, the planet's always been going to hell in a handbasket, right? The apocalypse is always nigh. And that's because we die and so does everything else. And so, well, the apocalypse is nigh and you can save the world by protesting against those who are at fault. That's the, what universities sell young people. Well, it's an adventure, right? They have a messianic urge at that age. And that really never goes away in people in some fundamental sense, but it's particularly acute when adolescents, late adolescents, are trying to catalyze their identity. And the left offers these false adventures. You can be, the, you, you print out a sign that says, I oppose poverty, as if anyone doesn't. And you wave that around publicly, which is the same as praying in public, right? It's a great sin. And you proclaim your moral virtue and bang, that's your adventure. And it's a cheap, it's a cheap pathway to to reputational accomplishment. And, and part of the reason young guys do it, you know perfectly well, is because they're trying to impress young women and it's kind of, uh, what would you say? There's a surface, a surface attraction to being a kind of rebellious, quasi Che Guevara type and to be taking on, you know, the evil corporations of the world when you're 18, you know, instead of working at 7-Eleven and handing out sugar water to kids. Look, guys, you're going to suffer. And most of them are already suffering, so they know that. It's like, and you want to suffer stupidly, too? Because that's even worse. And then, you do you want to contemplate for a moment what's going to be your arc when the storms come? Well, I can tell you what it is. And you already know this because you've consulted your own conscience. When you're awake at three in the morning thinking about what a useless bastard you are, how many sins you have on your conscience, if you're fortunate, there'll be a few of your adventures come to mind where you think, well, you know, I didn't do so bad then. You know, maybe there's something to me. And so what do people remember when they have those memories? They remember the times when they stepped outside of their narrow selves and took on some bloody responsibility at least for themselves, and then maybe for someone else too, and then maybe for a lot of other people. And so if you tell young men, look, you're gonna find the meaning in your life by adopting, by adopting maximal responsibility, right? That's going to be extremely difficult because you're so bloody useless. You can't even get your own house in order. And you're, and you're going to be called upon not only to get your house in order, but to do that well enough so some woman can stand having you around for more than like 15 minutes in the back of a car. And then maybe you're gonna have to do it so that you could be a good father to a family and a pillar of the community. And that's not just empty words. Like if you do that nobly, there'll be something to you. And then when the storms come, you won't be blown over by the first four-foot wave. And young men think, huh, mean I could be something that wasn't blown over by the first four-foot wave? They think, oh, well, that's, that's, that's inspiring. Maybe that's worth doing a little work towards. It, on the off chance, it might be true. 
And the thing about it is, it is true. So it's not that difficult once you understand it to make a case for it. It's true. And it's also true that you grow in proportion to the weight you take on voluntarily. And it's also true that we have no idea what the upper limit to that is, right? So, you know, you, you've met remarkable people in your life. People can do remarkable things. And there are inevitably people who, take, who took on remarkable burdens. And because they did that, their development was forced by necessity. They were forced by necessity to grow beyond what they were. And who knows what the limit to that is? Misplaced envy is a really big problem. Resentment's a really big problem. Historical ignorance is a really big problem. You know, I mean, pe people don't know how bad it was. They don't know how far we've come. They're never taught that. They're not taught how terrible things had become in many places in the 20th century. Like my students in my personality class, these were smart kids at the University of Toronto. They were well-educated by, by comparative standards. None of them knew anything about what happened in Stalinist Soviet Union or in Maoist China or in Cambodia. No one had ever ta taught them. And so, so I, th I think, you know, young people, they, they see inequality in the world and they see some of the painful consequences of inequality because there are painful consequences. And then they're enticed into finding a quick source of blame that requires no thought and also enticed into manifesting a moral virtue that is neither moral nor virtuous. And so, and then, and so here we are. And instead of, uh, you know, I've thought for many years, decades, that whenever I walk out on the street and things aren't on fire, I'm pretty damn thrilled at how stable and peaceful things are. I don't take electricity for granted. I don't take the integrity of the supply chain for granted. I truly think these are miracles. I don't think the fact that the default interaction between human beings in, in, this, in the Western world, broadly speaking, the default economic transaction is based on trust. I don't take that for granted. That's a bloody miracle. It took us hardly any societies have ever managed that. And it took us thousands and tens of thousands of years to produce that. But I think children, our children are so badly educated by people who have no idea. They have no idea about economics. They have no idea about history. They have no idea about privation or suffering. They're looking for easy answers and, and, uh, and, and people to blame for the remaining, you know, catastrophes of the world. And I think your work is an unbelievably good antidote to that. And, and something to offer young people that's so bloody positive with and, and that it's, you know, miraculous and not naive at the same time. Like what a good combination that is. Well, here's here's the question I love to ask my students is what would I have to pay you for you to never use your 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 iPhone and the Internet again for the remainder of your life? And I've never get I've never been able to get a student to, to do it for less than five million dollars. It's like mm -hmm. you have this five million dollar thing that you own. <laughs> you're all you're all five millionaires because you get to walk around with these devices. Uh, oh yeah, you, definitely. You are you are so prosperous, so rich compared to to anybody that's come before you. How could you not be anything other than than just just hyper grateful for the life that we have? Well, you know, I th I think that one of the things we need to do about this is we need to start training young people to think about themselves as possessed of more possibility than they know what to do with and then 
encouraged to harness that in it so it say well look you you have all the food that you could have and you have all the information that there is you've got it all in front of you now that you have it all in front of you what's the most noble vision you can bring forth to make use of that possibility you know and and i know some of the research i've done on helping people make vision for the future future authoring program we show pretty clearly that you can motivate students we drop the dropout rate of boys in in community college 50% by just having them sit down for 90 minutes and develop a vision so you say look you look at what's in front of you way more than anyone's ever had in history and some people might have a little more in front of them than you like certainly but when you have more than you can ever use how much do you need and 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 then who should you be to live up to that well that's you know our collective problem at the moment trying to solve that and hopefully solving it before we let bitterness and resentment and historical ignorance get the upper hand because it's kind of a battle at the moment with our computer technology every single child i would say on the planet but certainly in the in the states where everyone has access to computational equipment every single child should be an expert speed reader because computers could train children to automate letter phoneme and word recognition perfectly rapidly because computers are great at mass practice and if the faculties of education had an ounce of integrity they would have been working diligently on the problem of getting children over that hump because there's a hump in reading comprehension aid eh? because to begin with like there is when you're learning how to play music you have to automate letter recognition and syllable recognition and word recognition and then phrase recognition so you get a phrase in a at a glance as soon as you've got that you can start to read for meaning it's no longer effortful and then as soon as you can read for meaning of course it's it's just as engaging as watching a movie which people obviously don't have to be taught to do and so there are all these problems that are laying out there in the world and and people have a set of problems that bug them that they could be working on fixing and they have all this technology to fix it it's like that's that's what you want to do is figure out what what you think needs to be fixed and then take all this wealth that you had put at your disposal and fix it man and then you got something to do with your life and we could start with the proposition that it's good that you're around you don't have to hang your head in shame because you're ruining everything quite the contrary that's actually wrong and i don't just mean wrong morally i mean wrong in the sense you guys have pointed out it's wrong technically no that's wrong those biologists got it wrong would you call yourself a socialist Uh, no. You've never told a lie in politics? No. No. See, somebody sent me a video actually last Friday and it had you talking at the socialist community. Oh, yes, yes. And you mentioned the word comrade uh, about four times in a minute. What was that about? It was a rally and I would have been about 25 years old. Comrade, 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 comrade. Comrade, 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 comrade. It was in 2009. Oh, well, I can't remember which country it was in. Has it changed since those days? No, not particularly. No. If you are caught in a lie or caught intentionally misleading the New Zealand public, how would you expect to be held to account? Well, I actually believe that it is possible to exist in politics without lying. We drum in that messaging around the dangers of COVID pretty diligently for a full two-week period of sustained propaganda. Sustained propaganda. Sustained propaganda.
reportedly considering the dismissal of both Valery Zaluzhny, the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and Sergei Sheptala, the chief of the general staff. This news follows Zelensky's recent announcement of a significant restructuring of Ukraine's leadership. The tensions between Zelensky and Zaluzhny escalated after a disagreement over the state of the conflict, with Zaluzhny describing it as a stalemate and Zelensky vehemently disagreeing, particularly in the context of diminishing support from Western allies. Zelensky's planned changes aim to address more than just individual roles, emphasizing the seriousness of the overhaul. Sheptala, like Zaluzhny, is expected to be relieved of his duties as part of this reorganization, possibly within the week. A recent poll conducted by Servation and reported by ITV reveals a significant decline in support for the Labour Party among British Muslims since the last general election. The Labour Muslim Network commissioned the survey, which found that Labour's backing within the Muslim community in the UK has dropped to 43%, a stark contrast to the 86% support it had in the 2019 general election. Despite this decrease, Labour still maintains a substantial lead over the Conservative Party among British Muslims, with the Conservatives currently holding just 6% of this demographic support, down from 10% in the previous election. The Labour Muslim Network has expressed concern that this sharp fall in support could indicate long-term challenges for the party in maintaining its Muslim voter base. In Istanbul, near a courthouse, six individuals sustained injuries in what is being labeled as a terrorist assault, as stated by the Turkish Interior Ministry. The incident, which occurred a week following an attack on a Catholic church in the city resulting in one fatality, involved two assailants, a male and a female, who initiated gunfire at a police checkpoint outside the Caglian courthouse at around 9 a.m. on Tuesday. The attack resulted in injuries to six people, among them three police officers. The police successfully thwarted a potentially more extensive attack aimed at a security checkpoint at the courthouse, which was presumably the intended target, according to the minister's statement. Russian permanent representative to the UN, Vasily Nebenzia, has criticized the United States for its recent airstrikes in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen, describing them as aggressive and unlawful acts that exacerbate conflicts in the Middle East. This statement was made during a UN Security Council session, urgently requested by Russia in response to the U.S. military's action following a drone attack on an American base in Jordan. Nebenzi accused the U.S. of disregarding international law and intensifying regional tensions, and highlighted the illegality of U.S. bases in Syria due to the lack of authorization from the Syrian government. In contrast, U.S. Alternative Representative for Special Political Affairs Robert Wood defended the airstrikes stating they were necessary, proportionate, and in line with international law, serving as an exercise of the U.S.'s right to self-defense. Former President Donald Trump came out forcefully in opposition to the Senate's pro-migration border deal. Trump joined a chorus of Republicans in opposition to the deal negotiated by Senator James Lankford. Trump wrote on Sue's social, only a fool or radical left Democrat would vote for this horrendous border bill which only gives shutdown authority after 5,000 encounters a day when we already have the right to close the borders now, which must be done. This bill is a great gift to the Democrats and a death wish for the Republican Party. Trump spoke with radio host Dan Bongino. What should happen next with this abomination of a bill? Well, it shouldn't even be considered. I think it's dead in the House. I don't think anybody's going to go for it. It's uh, terrible. It's also a way of shipping tens of billions of dollars out of our country into other countries. We'll be back with another news break at the top of the next hour. This has been James O'Neill for TNT. 
With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to TNTradio.live. Listening to Grant Edwards, 88.1 FM, The Wireless, The World at Five. I was extremely disappointed to hear the Radio New Zealand interview today with Te Party Māori leader Debbie Ngāriwapaka. The struggle with Hamas is not about colonisation. Israel completely left Gaza in 2005, completely left every Israeli, every Jewish settlement, was forcibly removed by Israel so they could hand control over to the people of Gaza. They were effectively giving the Gazans their rangatiratanga. And what happened? They voted into power Hamas, a terrorist entity, who took over Gaza and turned it into a terrorist enclave. Who is Hamas? Hamas is connected to the Muslim Brotherhood. It's a radical Islamist group that shares the values of the Muslim Brotherhood. It is backed by Iran and funded by Qatar. There are similar movements throughout the Middle East. They're connected to Hezbollah in the north who are currently firing on Israel. They all have the same ideology. Their goal is to annihilate Israel. It is written in their charter. That is their goal. That is what they've been trying to do for the past 16 years. That is what they were trying to do on the 7th of October. They went into Jewish communities with the intention to kill as many Jews as possible. That is genocide. To compare what Hamas is doing with what the IDF is doing is morally reprehensible. Hamas has in its charter their desire to annihilate Israel. They are a radical Islamist group. That's what they're trying to do. Israel believes in the principles, the value of life. They do everything possible to save civilian life. They never target civilians. They target terrorist infrastructure. They warn civilians. They try to allow civilians to leave. What we have seen in the last couple of weeks is the difference between Hamas that uses its people as human shields and Israel that tries to protect civilian lives, the lives of its own people, as well as the lives of the Palestinians. Israel gave warning to the people to leave because they were going to target terrorist infrastructure. Hamas set up roadblocks to stop their own people from leaving. Why is that? Because Hamas is a radical Islamist group that does not value life, does not value the lives of its own people. They use their people as human shields. They store their weapons in hospitals, in schools. To compare the two is morally reprehensible. To accuse Israel of genocide, colonization and apartheid, as Debbie has done, is reality inversion. There is no apartheid in Israel. 20% of the population are Arabs. They have equal rights. They have the same freedoms as every other person in Israel. They're successful in society. They're in all parts of society. They are doctors, lawyers, judges, 
teachers, right throughout society. The only apartheid you will see is in Gaza and in some parts of the West Bank, where Jews are forbidden to enter, and if they do, they risk being killed. That is the only apartheid that actually exists in Israel. Israel is not committing genocide. Hamas has committed genocide. Israel does not support apartheid. Hamas does, and some of the Palestinian territories do. They want to cleanse the entire area of Jews. That's what the river to the sea means. It's a call for genocide. It is the Jews who are the indigenous people of the land. They have more than a three and a half thousand year continuous connection with that land. It is the land where their unique culture, their religion, their language developed. The Arabs are in fact indigenous to Arabia. Jews have experienced all the struggles of indigenous peoples, expulsion from their land, dispossession, persecution, pogroms, and yet they have managed to be restored to their ancient ancestral homeland. This should be an inspiration for indigenous peoples, and in fact, has been an inspiration to Māori, especially from the 19th century, even to today. Many Māori resonate with the story of the Israelites. You look at uh, some of our Māori prophetic movements like Ratana, Iharaira, Ringatū, there is a strong connection to Israel which is there even to today. The only people to have ever had sovereignty in the land are the Jewish people. They have three times had sovereignty in that land prior to 1948. It is their ancestral homeland and the Arabs of that period recognised it and acknowledged it. The kind of inflammatory rhetoric that the Māori Party is spouting is irresponsible. Calling Israel evil is demonising and dehumanising, and it has a direct impact on the lives of Jews everywhere. The small Jewish community in New Zealand is a vulnerable community, and they are being subject to targeting, to intimidation, because of this kind of rhetoric that is not based on history or fact, but actually is Hamas propaganda. I call on the Māori Party to look into the history, to hear the other side of the story, to meet with Jewish people to understand what they are experiencing right now. They have just experienced the worst slaughter in one day since the Holocaust. You're listening to Grant Edwards, 88.1 FM, The Wireless, The World at Five. Retired U.S. Army Colonel Douglas McGregor has recently shared thoughts about the current crisis happening at the Texas border. He further suggested that the crisis could lead to escalated tensions in the region of Texas and the U.S. as a whole. What could these issues be and their possible effects on the state of Texas and the U.S. as a whole? The Texas border crisis has become a focal point for a contentious and escalating battle between federal and state officials highlighting a deep-seated disagreement that initially centered on the use of razor wire, but has now evolved into a broader power struggle over control of a crucial section of the Texas-Mexico border. At the heart of the dispute is the question of how to address illegal immigration, with state authorities in Texas advocating for more aggressive measures to secure the border, while federal officials contend that a balanced and comprehensive approach is necessary. 
The deployment of razor wire, initially viewed as a temporary solution to deter unlawful border crossings, has become a symbolic flashpoint, representing larger ideological differences in the approach to border security. This disagreement has led to a standoff, with both sides firmly asserting their jurisdictional authority and intensifying the debate over the role each level of government should play in managing the complex challenges associated with the Texas-Mexico border. The Texas border crisis has transcended its origins as a mere policy disagreement and has evolved into a broader political and cultural issue, drawing attention and involvement from neighboring states. The escalation of tensions has prompted other states to take action, contributing to the complexity of the situation. In a show of solidarity or perhaps in recognition of the broader implications of border security, several states have dispatched National Guard members to reinforce Texas's efforts in managing the situation. The Texas-Mexico border situation is getting more heated as Texas authorities persist in installing razor wire along a 29-mile stretch of the riverbank in Eagle Pass, despite pushback from the Biden administration. This move directly challenges a U.S. Supreme Court ruling from January that allowed federal officials to remove the razor wire. The stakes rise with the White House's argument that the razor wire creates a hazardous environment for federal border agents, hindering their ability to effectively carry out their duties, including providing aid to migrants. As the razor wire controversy plays out, it prompts broader questions about finding the right balance between securing borders and ensuring the safety and well-being of migrants and those tasked with enforcing border regulations. Despite the U.S. Supreme Court ruling, tensions persist along the Texas-Mexico border as Texas authorities actively prevent U.S. Border Patrol from accessing Shelby Park, a city-owned park situated near the Rio Grande. This particular area has been a focal point for migrant entries in significant numbers over recent years. In a move that further heightens the dispute, Texas is unwavering in its efforts to fortify the region by installing additional razor wire, signaling a continued commitment to its approach to border security. While the Texas border dispute rages on, migrants persist in undertaking perilous journeys across the Rio Grande, navigating the challenging terrain in pursuit of a better life. Interestingly, despite the ongoing influx, there has been a notable decline in crossings at the city-owned Shelby Park since December. However, the contentious use of razor wire in the park remains a focal point of concern and criticism. Last summer, USA Today shed light on the detrimental consequences of this measure, reporting instances of severe injuries inflicted on migrants, including children. The disturbing accounts detailed a range of injuries, from bruises to broken ankles and deep gashes that required medical staples for closure. Texas Governor Greg Abbott believes that the use of the wires is an effective and efficient way to prevent migrants from entering the U.S. On the day of the Supreme Court's ruling on January 22nd, Texas Governor Greg Abbott took to social media to assert the state's commitment to its border security measures. Governor Abbott declared, This is not over. Texas's razor wire is an effective deterrent to the illegal crossings Biden encourages. Governor Greg Abbott's stance on border security has garnered support from a unified front of Republican state governors, with nearly all of them expressing solidarity with Texas in addressing the challenges along the border. The latest addition to this collaborative effort is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has announced the dispatch of National Guard members from Florida to assist Texas in its border security initiatives. In a demonstration of interstate cooperation, Governor DeSantis declared that Florida will soon contribute up to 1,000 members of its National Guard to bolster efforts along the Texas-Mexico border. 
The contentious standoff over control of the Texas-Mexico border has crystallized into a tense dynamic pitting the Republican-controlled state government, led by Governor Greg Abbott, against the Democrat-led federal government with President Joe Biden at the helm. This clash represents an unraveling of a long-standing tradition of cooperation between the state's law enforcement agencies and federal border patrol officials. The discord highlights the deep ideological divisions and differing policy priorities between the state and federal authorities, particularly concerning immigration and border security. The historic collaboration between Texas law enforcement and federal agencies in managing the border has faced unprecedented strain, with the state's government taking an assertive stance that challenges the direction set by the White House. The intensifying conflict over control of the Texas-Mexico border has manifested in a significant disruption to the established operations of the Border Patrol, particularly in the utilization of Shelby Park. This city-owned park had previously served as a crucial area for processing migrants crossing the border via the Rio Grande. However, following the state's seizure of control, the park has been closed off not only to migrants, but also to federal Border Patrol agents. More recently, there has been an absence of migrants observed at the park, coinciding with the installation of extra razor wire by Texas National Guard members. The U.S. Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, expressed strong disapproval, asserting that it is unacceptable for a public official to intentionally avoid communication, coordination, and collaboration with other public officials. Such actions, he stated, are deemed unconscionable, especially when they are aimed at generating disorder for others while neglecting the collective interests of the nation. Mallorca's conveyed these sentiments in a statement to the Associated Press. The ongoing disagreements between Texas and the Biden administration raise questions of legality. Following Governor Abbott's takeover of the park, the Supreme Court, in a decisive 5-4 ruling, granted permission for federal agents to dismantle the razor wire. This verdict stood as a significant triumph for the Biden administration in the ongoing legal and jurisdictional clash over control of the Texas-Mexico border. In legal documents, the Biden administration contended that the razor wire obstructs Border Patrol agents from reaching migrants during river crossings. The argument presented emphasized that federal immigration laws take precedence over Texas's independent initiatives to impede the influx of migrants into the country. Despite the Supreme Court's decision, Governor Abbott maintained that the state possesses the inherent right to safeguard its border, emphasizing his commitment to defending Texas's constitutional authority. In the aftermath of the ruling, Abbott took the opportunity to criticize President Joe Biden, asserting that the lax enforcement of immigration laws by the Biden administration poses a threat to Texas. He expressed a steadfast determination to prevent what he perceives as the potential destruction of state property, framing the ongoing border control measures as a matter of constitutional responsibility and protection of Texas interests. The subsequent steps for the courts or the U.S. Department of Justice remain uncertain in the ongoing legal and jurisdictional wrangling over the Texas-Mexico border. Meanwhile, President Biden has pledged to take swift action to shut down the border with Mexico, contingent on Congress, approving a proposal currently under negotiation in the Senate. The president has called on lawmakers to prioritize passing a bipartisan bill, urging their commitment to addressing the border crisis. The United States Border Patrol has grappled with a significant influx of illegal immigrant border crossers, recording over 6.3 million encounters from the onset of the Biden administration in January 2021 through December 2023. 
About 58% of the almost 4 million interactions took place in border areas that are partly situated in Texas. Furthermore, the number of undocumented immigrants or who entered without being detected by the Border Patrol is estimated by the Department of Homeland Security to be between 1.6 and 1.8 million. The substantial increase in encounters over the past few years can be largely attributed to the robust nature of the U.S. labor market and an unprecedented demand for foreign labor. This surge has occurred against the backdrop of historically low unemployment rates and near-record levels of job openings. The prevailing conditions in the labor market play a pivotal role in incentivizing individuals, particularly those with lower skill levels, to seek opportunities in the United States. One significant factor contributing to the surge is the limited avenues available for lower-skilled immigrants to enter the country lawfully. The existing legal immigration pathways may not adequately cater to the high demand for labor in certain sectors, prompting many migrants to explore alternative, albeit illegal, means of entry. Experts believe President Biden has the potential to diminish illegal immigration by extending the reach of the successful parole program, which presently permits certain Cubans, Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, and Haitians sponsored by Americans to enter the United States through legal channels. By expanding this program, the administration could provide a lawful and regulated avenue for individuals from these regions to enter the country, thereby reducing the incentive for illegal border crossings. This strategy aligns with the concept of creating legal pathways for migration, addressing the root causes of unauthorized immigration. Governor Greg Abbott has a pivotal role to play in fostering collaboration with the Biden administration by taking steps such as withdrawing Texas's additional lawsuit against parole and refraining from unwarranted trade restrictions. Beyond the potential negative impact on the American economy, it becomes increasingly evident that one of the most effective and humane strategies for significantly mitigating illegal immigration is to prioritize the expansion of legal immigration channels. In this context, Governor Abbott's cooperation could contribute to a comprehensive and balanced approach to immigration reform that addresses concerns while upholding essential values. Thank you for watching our video. Can the federal government and the state of Texas come to a consensus on immigration? Your thoughts with us in the comment section and do not forget to like, share, and subscribe. Remember to hit the notification bell for more videos. You're listening to Grant Edwards, 88.1 FM, The Wireless, The World at 5. So that's where England's at. We now have all of these towns and major cities that are completely taken over by a densely packed Muslim population who control housing. We have a Muslim housing association in London, so we cannot access that housing. There's a Muslim police association in London. It's not one like you have. You have the pretend Muslim police, don't you, who have the pretend NYPD cars. Ours is real, the Muslim police association. And before you know it, you have this dual policing system that starts off, and that's not a good thing to witness. So I'll give you one example. In a place called Glasgow, it is a rough end of uh, Glasgow. There's a densely packed Muslim population. It's the middle of the day, four o'clock, and out onto the street comes a woman. She's all aflame. She's all lit up, and she's screaming, help me, help me. And the guy hears her and he runs out. He's in a garage where he's working. He manages to find water. She's on the grass now, laid down. And he manages to throw water on her and puts her out. 
and I have pictures still of the grass where they picked her up and put her in the ambulance, all black and burnt. That part of Glasgow is under Sharia. It's under Muslim policing. Um, they did a statement. Um, the police said there were no suspicious circumstances. And the local mosque, despite the fact there was no other comment to be made by the police, the mosque said it was one of our sisters. It was not a hate crime, so people don't need to be concerned. But a good Muslim doesn't gossip about what happens to a sister. Now, when you start with that kind of policing happening, then all of your faith in your country is very easily diluted. The reason 2,000 of our young white girls were raped in one town alone, Rotherham, was because when the girls went to the police, the police didn't want to be called Islamophobic. When the girls told the social workers, they didn't want to be called racist. The girls were t pushed away, turned away. No, you must be wrong. Some of them were from care homes, so they just weren't believed. And in the end, 2,000 girls were raped by gangs of majority Pakistani Muslim men. I was uh, referred to the police. I was uh, investigated for calling these rape squads majority Pakistani Muslim rape squads. And it wasn't looking too good for me until statistics uh, came out on it and it was revealed that they were actually majority Pakistani Muslim rape squads. So I'll take that one. But this is where the police come in. The police are now a legitimate arm of the government silencing machine. There is a hate crime unit that Sadiq Khan has set up to police Twitter, specifically my Twitter. Um, and I have been arrested and interviewed under caution by the Major Crime and Homicide Command, two men in a cell with a tape recorder uh, for, a, for a column I wrote in the newspaper about migrants because it was seen as hate speech. Um, luckily, uh, that wasn't referred and I got away with that. But they, they are cracking down fast. My children are referred to social services. So people that are against me or want to shut me up will ring social services about my children. So we've had them to the house three, four times. And I respect that. I'm glad. Because if someone's in trouble, I want them to be found out. The only thing I wonder is, where were social services for those 2,000 girls in Rotherham when they needed some help? Why is it that it would be believable if it was something to do with me? If you've ever watched a White House press briefing, you know for a fact that Karine Jean-Pierre doesn't like you at all. But don't feel bad because she despises someone else more. She really dislikes a specific reporter from Africa. His name is Simon Atiba. He works with Today News. He's had a lot of hostile encounters with Karine Jean-Pierre for some reason. Yesterday, she freaked out on him and stormed out of the press conference, ending it early. So we kept track of this weird psychodrama going on. Here are some clips from it. She's asking about the origin of COVID. I hear the question. And Dr. Fauci is the best person to answer I, I that question. I hear your question, but we're not doing this the way you want it. This is the disrespect of me. Is it, it is. I'm done. Simon, I'm done. I'm Simon, I'm done. I'm done with you right now. So what's the difference between President Trump not doing anything while the Capitol was being attacked and President Biden not doing anything while protesters, uh, while the Supreme Court justices were under attack? To say that there is no difference, that is, uh, that is just 
unbelievably wrong. Is it concerned that Supreme Court justice I'm, I'm, I'm moving on. I'm moving on. You don't give us questions. Okay. I, I'm trying to answer your question. Go ahead, sir. Go ahead. I just tried. You wouldn't let me. Go ahead. I just tried, and you would not let me, sir. So your colleague is going to ask a question. Go ahead. No, I just, I literally just tried to answer your question. You shut me down. So now your colleague is going to. Let me take the question first before you Okay. Thanks, everybody. I'll see you tomorrow. It's a good thing she's unarmed or Simon and Tiba would be in deep trouble. He's his correspondent for Today News Africa and obviously kind of a hero. He joins us tonight. Simon, thank you so much for, for coming on. She, I can, you can feel it watching that tape. She is mad at you. Why do you think that is? Yes, uh, first of all, thank you, Tucker, for having me on your show. There's a reason why uh, your show is the most watched show in news in the U.S., because you bring people like me. It's been a disaster, a total um, uh, catastrophe, a real nightmare covering the Biden White House. Right now, I'm the voice of Africa in the U.S., but I can confirm that um, the level of discrimination against me and against African journalists in the White House, it's outstanding, it's disgraceful. You know, uh, it's been three months that we don't have questions at the White House. Even as President Biden is about to receive 50 African heads of state in D.C. for the U.S. African summit, she didn't even give us even a single question. I've been trying for the past three months. And, you know, it's shocking because she's black. She's an immigrant. I'm black. I'm also an immigrant. And she's discriminating against me more than the white people, who were, the white yes. lady who was there before. And it's, it's, it, it's shocking. She should be ashamed of herself for doing that. And, and, and it, it, it's heartbreaking. She's obviously a bigot. You can see it in her face. She really, really dislikes you. Do you suppose it's because you don't have the same views that someone who looks like you should have, in her opinion? Yes. So it, I believe that has to do maybe with two or three things. The first thing, I sound different. I wasn't born here. I was born in Cameroon. I speak French. I speak different languages. I don't have the American accent. I tried. I failed. And I've decided to stick with my accent. Uh, so I'm an immigrant, and she doesn't like that. And I ask tough questions. For instance, I will ask her, how is it, how is it understandable that President Biden is inviting 50 African heads of state to the U.S. who will spend almost $50 million each, and you ca he doesn't have five minutes to spend with each of them. He won't have any one-on-one -on -one with any of those African presidents who are coming here in countries where money is already a big problem. Why not have this, uh, this meeting on Zoom, for instance, you know, uh, and so I ask questions about COVID. How do you explain that one million people, if we have to go by the official figures, one million Americans were killed by COVID, and we don't know where COVID came. You lied to us, you told us the, the, the COVID came from bad to human, and then now we understand that it probably came from the lab, and that's the most consequential question. And she wouldn't even allow Diana from, you know, Daily Caller to ask that question. And Amazing. when I intervene and say that, no, you need to allow her to ask the question, you know, I'm being blacklisted and it's unfortunate, it's disgraceful. Well, you are always welcome on this show, and I suspect we will see you again. Simon and but thank you so much. We're on your side. More news next. You. You're listening to Grant Edwards, 88.1 FM, The Wireless, The World at Five. 
as we do every week, it's time to speak to one of the finest thinkers of his generation, the best-selling author of groundbreaking works, including The War on the West, The Strange Death of Europe, and The Madness of Crowds. Douglas Murray, we will get to the most extraordinary day in US politics shortly. But I was delighted to see you in The Australian in recent days, writing about Australia's divisive race obsession, including, as you put it, this endless guilt tripping and apologies that we seem to be trapped in. Yes, that's right. Uh, Obviously, it's ahead of the the vote uh, in Australia. I've been following this pretty closely and uh, I have indeed been following it for many years. And I felt perhaps it took an outsider to say some of this, but I'm horrified by the sorry cycle that Australia has found itself in in recent years. Very few countries I can think of in my own lifetime have been through this sorry spiral in the way that Australia mm. has. You mentioned earlier, Rita, my book, The Strange Death of Europe, which is about immigration. Uh, but I mentioned there the, the, the phenomenon across all Western developed countries uh, of the sort of endless digging up and apologizing for our past and the weird way in which it is a sort of only a Western obsession. And I, and I wrote there in The Strange mm-hmm. Death of Europe, years ago about the way that Australia was especially caught in this cycle. And so, yes, I've been wanting to write about it for a long time. I was glad to get the opportunity this week. And more on that observation of the apology loop, you also wrote about how when you travel around this country, the typical Australian no longer seems to be a sensible, happy-go-lucky bold figure of old. Uh, Are Australians becoming too afraid to be proud of their own country? Uh, Well, I think so. And I think it starts, as I said in the piece, from a very basic place. The same same question that Americans, Canadians and others have to ask themselves, which is, broadly, broadly speaking, are we glad that the people who found this country founded it? Um, Mm. uh, Or do we think they shouldn't have done? Do do we think that uh, Australian Aboriginal society ought to have been left as it was in perpetuity? Do we think that Columbus, when he sailed out and found the Americas, uh, should have turned back home and said, nothing to see there, guys, no land of opportunity at all? (laughs) Or broadly speaking, do we think that it's just that history happened? And, you know, in the case of Australia, um, an extremely undeveloped civilization, which the the Aboriginal societies were, uh, confronted a very modern society by the standards of the day and lost out. And, you know, bad things happened, as they always do. But should Australians in the 21st century be made to feel that it would be better if they weren't in Australia, uh, that it would be better if mm. if this land had not been discovered by the outside world and specifically never settled by the British? Or was it a good thing? And I think that it all starts from there, Rita. It starts from whether or not you're broadly speaking glad about the society you're in, or you think it's all just been a big disaster and it would be better if all the non-Aboriginal Australians just sort of sailed away and let the Aboriginal peoples of Australia enjoy and thrive in the way they did before uh, uh, the the British and others arrived. Just on that endless guilt-tripping and and apologies, it's now extending, Douglas, to 
preschoolers. Now, 2GB reported on children making sorry cards for actions of uh, colonisers against Indigenous people. The messages on the cards included things like, sorry for hurting the Darawal people, sorry for hurting you, and also messages like, we will be kind now. I mean, this collective oh. guilt and emotional blackmail is now being inflicted on children who are too young for school. These are preschoolers. It's, it's grotesque, Rita. It's absolutely grotesque, and it's child abuse, what's more. It's absolute child abuse. None of these children did anything wrong. Uh, nobody for generations can be given any... Uh, can be made, made a, be held accountable for any wrongdoing. Um, it, this is... you know, And in any case, this like, we're going to be kind now. Again, sorry, I have to come back to this and say this. Are the Aboriginal peoples all kind? Were they historically? Were they to each other? Or were they brutal and bloodthirsty to each other like most other peoples in history. You know, this ridiculous conceit that only the sort of white Western European settler can ever be uh, guilty of anything and everyone li else lived in this Edenic paradise is absolute guff and <laughs> rot and it should not be foisted, especially on children. To tell children from the beginning that they have any moral culpability in things they didn't do is wicked. It is child abuse on a massive scale future generations will realize that and i wish that this one did and realized it fast you're listening to grant edwards 88.1 fm the wireless the world at five you might be a little shocked to know that winston peters revealed to mike hosking in september 2020 that he had urged the cabinet two days before the first lockdown that the military needed to be called in I told them that two days before we went into the lockdown in the first place, that the military had to be involved. I've got witnesses to what I'm saying. And I said way back on the 19th of March that you've got to bring in people like Heather Simpson and have an oversight over the bureaucracy to make these things work. I said way back then we need to have masks. Yes, if it had his way, the army would have been patrolling our streets during our lockdowns, just like they were in China, to enforce their zero COVID policy. He also said that Heather Simpson should be hired to manage the situation, a woman who worked for Helen Clark for over 20 years was her chief of staff for nine, a woman that even Helen Clark joked was actually the most powerful woman in the country and that she still maintained a friendship with even while working at the UN. Have a listen to this little clip from October 2020 where Winston responds to a member of the public who dared to ask for scientific evidence of COVID, a reasonable request that a simple coronavirus might have been isolated by now to prove its existence, seeing that the complete evisceration of our society had been blamed on it. But Winston didn't seem to think it was a reasonable request. In fact, he ridiculed him, threw him an obligatory flat earther insult and shut him down. Where's your evidence that there is a virus that causes a disease? And you do that by satisfying four times five times. Sit down, sit down, sit down. We've got... Uh, someone obviously got an education in America. <laughs> 220,000 people have died in the United States. There are 8 million cases today. Uh, we've got 79,000 cases probably today in India. And here's somebody who gets up and says, the earth is flat. Sorry, sunshine, wrong place. Yes, sir. But I know many will be thinking, well, when he just didn't know the truth about the pandemic back then, but do you really believe that someone as internationally in the know as Winston Peters 
believed those figures he just quoted were true and accurate? We all know now that the COVID hoax was a long time in the making and was extremely and meticulously well orchestrated. How is it that we, the New Zealand public, with so much having been hidden from us, could have known what was going on, as that guy in Winston's audience clearly did, but Winston himself, who was not only an MP dating back to 1979, and the Treasurer of New Zealand, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, he's been Minister of State-Owned Enterprises, Minister of Racing, Acting Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister for two terms, how did he not know what we knew? He's got access to high security databases, for goodness sake. <laughs> Let's not forget, too, that while Jacinda was off racking up ear points around the world, Winston was signing off on the most abominable human rights violations ever seen in this country as deputy and even as acting prime minister. How long are we going to pretend that these people don't know what they're doing? The government had access to vaccine harm data and coroner's data well before we did before it was filtered and sanitised and censored. But we still knew. Winston Peters would like you to believe that he had no idea. That he's just waking up a little bit now, not too much, and just right before the election. And that is not what it looks like, people. It's not about votes. Now, if we're talking about the absolute best food to help you heal, repair, especially after exercise, but from anything like stress, trauma, surgery, hands down, the answer would be red meat. Now, I recently did a video talking about different proteins, which are a little bit better for certain health conditions. Maybe something's better for anti-inflammatory, etc. But when we're talking about generalized healing and repair, animal meat, and specifically red meat, is at the top of the list. Because not only does red meat have the most protein, it also has some other amazing things that I'm going to share with you today, which is going to blow you away. Over 30 years of practice, I've never met one person who ever had an allergy to meat, okay? They might have had an allergy to peanuts or eggs or seafood or shellfish or wheat or soy, but not red meat. And just the fact that uh, meat has been villainized, right, as uh, the bad guy, uh, you should start eating less red meat as a way to get healthy. Or overall, it's going to be better for climate change because we know the cows are destroying the climate, which is completely ridiculous. But right there, that one argument, the fact that mainstream is telling you not to do it, the truth is going to be in the exact opposite direction. In fact, it's difficult to heal and repair your body without animal protein especially red meat. And today I'm going to prove it. Now, in past videos, I talked about eggs and I eat a lot of eggs and eggs are awesome. Okay. But if we compare eggs to uh, meat, there is some significant differences. And that's what I want to talk about today. I've also talked about the benefit of having salmon and fish, which I also have once or twice a week. And salmon and sardines are very high in omega-3, which are good, but Beef, red meat, has more protein and it has a lot of other things that can help you heal if we look at the whole picture. I will say out of all the things that are involved in the healing process and the repair process, uh, we need amino acids. We, we need bioavailable protein, which is going to be animal protein, and we need concentrated protein. And if we just compare red meat to eggs, um, red meat is twice as concentrated in amino acids. 
It also has 1.5 times greater iron, 2.2 times greater magnesium, 3.7 times greater amounts of zinc, and 50 times more vitamin B3 than eggs. It has double the amount of B1, four times the amount of B6, twice the amount of B12, and four times the amount of vitamin K, and five times the amount of omega-3 fatty acids. The ratios are going to be better. And of course, I'm not talking about processed meat from factory farms. I'm talking about grass-fed um, beef. Even if you compare that to chickens that are pasture-raised, they're still fed grains, which kind of throw off the uh, omega-3 to omega-6 ratios. Now, that being said, eggs are also a good source of protein. But as a side note, beef liver has 73 times more vitamin A than eggs. Now, there's another nutrient that eggs have that's better than beef, and that would be choline. It has a little bit more than double the amount of B2 and a lot more folate. It has 12 times the amount of folate than in beef. Beef has something else that I think is like the X factor. Actually, it's four things I'm going to mention. And the first one is carnitine. It's this thing that helps transport fat into your cells, into the energy factory called the mitochondria to help you get more energy. So without carnitine, the cells can't get energy from fat. Carnitine gives you that quick energy when you're exercising. And since we're talking about a really important transport of fuel to the mitochondria, that is essential for healing and repair of your tissues. So not only do we need all the essential amino acids as the raw material for proteins, not just for your muscles, but for all your biochemistry, we also need other things as well, like those vitamins I just mentioned, which are cofactors, but also the shuttle to allow this raw material to give our bodies energy. So if we compare like 100 grams of red meat versus 100 grams of eggs, the amount of carnitine would be like 150 milligrams versus only seven milligrams for eggs. But as far as the food that has the most carnitine, it would be lamb. But beef is number two. So this beef red meat is at the top of the list as far as giving you a good source of carnitine. Then we have creatine. Creatine gives us that quick energy. It can be used as fuel for very, very high explosive intense movements. Both exercise and physical activity needs this creatine. So this is why you see a lot of bodybuilders and uh, weightlifters and people who do exercise taking this as a supplement. Well, guess what? Out of all the foods that you could possibly eat on planet Earth, red meat from beef has the highest amount of creatine. So creatine is just going to give you more energy to heal and repair from exercise. Now, the next compound I'm going to talk about, which by the way, red meat from beef has the absolute highest source. It's called carnosine. It buffers this pH, okay, from the lactic acid, the acidity in the muscle. So if you're exercising, this compound comes along and helps neutralize this acid to allow you to exercise longer because the pH messes with some of the oxygen in the muscle. So it buffers the pH, it acts as an antioxidant, and it's also going to help the recovery after exercise and just healing in general of your whole body. And it also even decreases uh, something called AGEs. Uh, and I'm going to give you this term. I don't know if you've ever heard it before. It's called advanced glycation end products. 
And basically, this is a fancy term for when uh, you have this sugar molecule that's locked up with a protein molecule and it's kind of stuck in the body. So these AGEs kind of plug up the body and they interfere with the function and they usually come from someone that's consuming too much sugar. Well, guess what? This compound helps get rid of those things. So it's considered kind of an anti-aging thing. It can help you just live longer. But out of all the foods that you can eat, red meat from beef has the most carnosine. And then we have coenzyme Q10. What is that? That is a nutrient that helps the mitochondria, the energy factory, where food gets converted to energy. Now, and the best source of coenzyme Q10 is organ meats, like beef liver for sure, but it's also in the meat as well. It's also in fish, it's in eggs, but it's mostly in organ meats. So just in general, um, when I was very, very sick and I stumbled on this ketogenic diet, low-carb diet, Buffalo Burger was my first food that I ate that I felt so good. I actually healed my body on Buffalo Burger and hamburger. In fact, to this day, I still feel the best when I consume um, red meat in the form of hamburger. Now, I will do steak and things like that, but I do very, very well on red meat in general. And if you're trying to heal, especially after exercise or you're trying to repair from some type of injury or trauma, um, you should really consider increasing more red meat and having it more often. And the cool thing about hamburger is it has a little bit more fat than some of the um, like leaner cuts of steak. And there's only two conditions that you need to know about relating to the difficulty of digesting red meat. People that don't like red meat really have low stomach acids. And as someone ages, they get older, they will lose their stomach acids and the taste for red meat goes down. They can't really tolerate it. And there's this very simple solution. Just add some betaine hydrochloride to the meal. I'll put a link down below. You just take three to five before a meal. Okay, you don't have to take it forever. Just take it for a month. And what will happen is it'll start to increase the acidity in your stomach. You'll start to digest the red meat much better and break it down and start feeling better. But when people get older, they just have a more difficult time because they don't have the stomach acid. And they're also going to have, as a parallel thing, uh, gas, more indigestion, definitely acid reflux, GERD. Those are all signs of low stomach acid. So instead of avoiding eating it, just fix the stomach's ability to digest it. And the one last point, there is a certain genetic condition where uh, someone has a hard time getting rid of iron. They tend to accumulate iron. And so if that is you, then maybe uh, red meat is not the answer. You would want to do maybe poultry or maybe eggs, different protein sources that have lower amounts of iron. But for everyone else, I highly recommend red meat. Even if you're going through your menstrual cycle and you're losing blood, boy, red meat is going to be the best way to fix it because you're probably slightly anemic and red meat has the best iron and B12 in the best forms. So I hope I've given you more than enough information to try this out to see if it helps you. But I consume a lot of red meat in the form of hamburger on a regular basis. And of course, I kind of am lucky because I get it from Animal Farm, but you can go get it from the farmer's market or you can get it online from various sources as well. Like one good source would be U.S. Wellness Meats. I'll put a link down below 
for them as well. But if you have not seen my video on protein related to other specific body conditions, I put that up right here. Check it out. You're listening to Grant Edwards, 88.1 FM, The Wireless, The World at Five. So I've only been eating beef fundamentally for almost five years now. I eat a lot of meat and a lot of high fat meat. And so I'm never hungry. The food pyramid was actually produced not by scientists, but by the Department of Agriculture. And it was a marketing scheme, essentially. The consequence of the marketing scheme was that people were enticed to rely primarily on carbohydrates for their nutritional necessities. Perhaps carbohydrates at far too excess at a level. Now, carbohydrates are transmuted into glucose during metabolism, and we eat way more carbohydrates than we need to produce the amount of glucose that we need. Now, people have been getting fatter in a catastrophic way for about four or five decades, and that's really in no small part since the introduction of the food pyramid. Now, this is still being pushed forward by people who are hypothetically on the nutritional front, and they are cheap, and they are delicious, and they are easily provided and they are portable. As you may or may not know, my daughter was very ill with a plethora of immunological problems, including very serious juvenile arthritis. And it just about killed her. It did destroy two of her joints and she had another 38 that were affected. And so she was always in a lot of pain. And I looked into the role the diet played in arthritis through the scientific literature for a couple of years and found if people who were arthritic fasted completely, their arthritic symptoms often disappeared. But then my daughter started to play, and my wife as well, very intensely with the diet. We went to a nutritionist who recommended an elimination diet at one point because we did notice that she would react to strawberries and oranges. And within a day, her thumbs would swell or her toes would swell. And so we knew there were some things she was eating. We had her tested for immunological reaction to food, but when we tested her, she showed a hyper reaction to virtually everything they tested her for. And so she started to experiment with more restricted diets. I started looking into diet for other reasons, not the depression. I thought the depression was here forever. And eventually settled on beef. And it turns out for her, it has to be beef that isn't aged. Then all of her immunological symptoms disappeared. Surprisingly, the depression lifted in like November for the first time ever. Because you changed your diet? Yeah. We got to look into that a little more. Yeah. And then my wife and I started playing with that diet. And so I've only been eating beef fundamentally for almost five years now. This is, first of all, radically effective as a weight loss strategy and also seems to produce remarkable effects on the general disease symptom front. Back in November of 2021, there was a study published by a Harvard group, which wasn't a perfect study because it was retrospective self-report. They assessed people who'd been on a carnivore diet for six months, and these people were so shocked by what they found. 69% improved chronic disease. 95% of them reported that they improved their overall overall health. 85% saw better mental clarity. The percentages go on. I mean, look at all of these percentages. All they did is eat meat, including fish. They also were able to eat eggs. They were able to eat dairy, drinking bone broth. You could have salt, you could have condiments, you can have spices, but there were no fruits, no vegetables, no grains. I never imagined in my wildest dreams, number one, that you could just live on meat. And number two, that it would have such a salutary effect. So for me, I lost 52 pounds in seven months. I went 
went from 212 pounds to 165, which is exactly what I weighed when I was 23. I've maintained that weight since. If you starve dogs down, I think it's 20% below rats too, below their optimal body weight, they live 30% longer. Yeah. That's a lot, 30%. Like it's like 30%. Yeah, yeah, 30%. Anyways. I can put on muscle mass with no problem, even though I'm 62. I had a host of inflammatory conditions, some of which were quite serious, including peripheral uveitis, which sometimes blinds people in my right eye, and it disappeared completely, along with psoriasis and gastric reflux disorder, and interestingly enough, gum disease, which is technically incurable, which is linked to cardiovascular degeneration, and which has gone away 100% in my case, according to multiple measures that my dentists have taken. So that's, that's quite interesting. But I'll tell you, it's something to be 60 and to have the same essential body morphology that I had when I was 23. And that had all disappeared for me in my early 50s. And I eat a lot of meat and a lot of high fat meat. And so I'm never hungry. You know, I can eat a tomahawk steak sometimes in one sitting, which is about 35 ounces of meat. I never get hungry. And I eat high fat carnivore snacks too. What I found is lo as long as I'm never hungry, I'm not inclined to cheat. But if I do try something like an introduction of carbohydrates, first of all, some of my symptoms come back right away, like the GERDs, and I start craving like mad. It is the case that I do better if I just stick to beef. I had a very terrible bout of ill health and I'm disinclined to do a lot of experimentation, although I'll probably try again in the future sometime. But I do know that beef works. We've been hypothesizing internally in our family for what it's worth is that the reason that beef works and that other ruminant animals, bison, so forth, uh, lamb, goat, is because they process what they eat through so many stomachs that by the time it is actually turned into meat, there's pretty much nothing else there. It's a very purified form of food. Now, like I said, that's anecdotal, but I can tell you after you've talked to a thousand people who tell you the same anecdote, you don't have an anecdote anymore, you have a hypothesis. And it's really quite something seeing these people who show me pictures of what they looked like a year ago. And, you know, they were carrying around an extra person with them and they're still shell-shocked by the transformation, you know, because it's really something to lose, say, 150 pounds in a year. The diet has actually been rejuvenating for my wife and I. Like, its effect on muscle tone has to be seen to be believed. And that's true even though both of us are 60. My wife is in better shape from a musculature perspective at 63 than she was when she was 40. And she was a very physically fit person who was exercising constantly and who was in pretty damn good shape. And to see that reverse rather than just, you know, stop deteriorating, I don't really know what to make of it. The advantage, too, of the diet, the carnivore diet in particular, is because you can eat as much as you want, it's actually not a diet. Now, the problem with diets is that they require privation and they require almost continual privation, and then they also tend to produce a yo-yo effect. And that's partly because if you get in a fight with your hypothalamus, which drives hunger, you're going to lose because it's there to make damn sure you don't starve. You know, if I ever start to crave a banana split, for example, I can just eat another five or six ounces of steak and then I don't care. If I go into a grocery store after having consumed enough meat, then the provision of this infinite display of delicious foods really doesn't affect me much. But boy, if I ever go into a grocery store when I'm hungry, that's quite the pain in the neck because everything's delightful and tempting, you know? My ability to concentrate when I was reading was deteriorating. And that instead of reading as deeply as I was, I was sort of glancing at the words. When I started this carnivore diet, that reversed. I actually think this is true. I think I can read faster and more efficiently than I could when I was in my 20s. Throughout the day, I'm also much more stress tolerant 
more and, and able to re, re bounce back from stressors faster on a carnivore diet. I'm stronger and I have more stamina than I did 10 years ago. to Grant Edwards, 88.1 FM, The Wireless, The World at Five. To hear a replay of this hour, go to episodes at tntradio.live. Now, TNT Radio News. For TNT, this is James O'Neill. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is reportedly considering the dismissal of both Valery Zeluzhny, the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and Sergei Sheptala, the chief of the general staff. This news follows Zelensky's recent announcement of a significant restructuring of Ukraine's leadership. The tensions between Zelensky and Zeluzhny escalated after a disagreement over the state of the conflict, with Zeluzhny describing it as a stalemate and Zelensky vehemently disagreeing particularly in the context of diminishing support from Western allies. Zelensky's planned changes aim to address more than just individual roles, emphasizing the seriousness of the overhaul. Shaptala, like Zeluzhny, is expected to be relieved of his duties as part of this reorganization, possibly within the week. A recent poll conducted by Servation and reported by ITV reveals a significant decline in support for the Labour Party among British Muslims since the last general election. The Labour Muslim Network commissioned the survey, which found that Labour's backing within the Muslim community in the UK has dropped to 43%, a stark contrast to this 86% support it had in the 2019 general election. Despite this decrease, Labour still maintains a substantial lead over the Conservative Party among British Muslims, with the Conservatives currently holding just 6% of this demographic support, down from 10% of the previous election. The Labour Muslim Network has expressed concern that this sharp fall in support could indicate long-term challenges for the party in maintaining its Muslim voter base. The House Rules Committee has approved a rule allowing the House of Representatives to consider impeachment articles against Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The committee voted 8-4 to four in favor, setting the stage for a potential vote on the impeachment as early as Tuesday. The decision also includes provisions for an unrelated health care bill. Chairman Tom Cole, a Republican from Oklahoma, expressed regret over the necessity of these actions, but cited Secretary Mayorkas' alleged refusal to enforce laws and loss of public trust as reasons for proceeding. The impeachment articles, accusing Mayorkas of breaching trust and systematically refusing to comply with the law, particularly managing the surge of immigrants at the southern border, were endorsed by the Homeland Security Committee in an 18-15 vote. However, the success of the impeachment vote is uncertain, as some Republicans, including Colorado Representative Ken Buck, have expressed reservations, with Buck stating that the issue does not constitute an impeachable offense. Renowned country music artist Toby Keith has passed away at 62 years old. An announcement on his social media confirmed his peaceful passing on the night of February 5th in the presence of his family. The statement highlighted Keith's graceful and courageous battle and requested privacy for his family during this difficult time. Toby Keith is survived by his wife, Tricia Lucas, their three children daughters, Shelley Coval Rowland and Crystal Keith, also a singer, and son Stellan, as well as four grandchildren. 
Throughout a successful career, Keith achieved significant acclaim, selling over 40 million records. Several migrants previously arrested in New York for assaulting NYPD officers in Times Square have been apprehended at a bus stop in Arizona. This group of seven had been involved in a violent encounter with two police officers on January 27th, following an altercation at a migrant shelter in New York. Out of the seven detained initially, six faced charges. While one remained in custody at Rikers Island, five were released without bail. Four of these individuals subsequently left New York, using false identities to acquire free bus tickets to California from a Catholic charity. Fox News disclosed on Monday that several members of this group were arrested in Phoenix, Arizona, though it remains unclear exactly which of the three who fled New York were caught at the bus stop. We'll be back with another news break at the top of the next hour. This has been James O'Neill for TNT. Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at TNTradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. You're listening to Grant Edwards, 88.1 FM, The Wireless, The World at Five. TNT Radio's Steve Hook. I want to talk about some reporting that's been going on. Some very irresponsible knee-jerk reporting, I think, has been happening uh, concerning the quote-unquote rocket fired from Israel that hit a hospital. Uh, New York Times jumped on this. Washington Post jumped on this. Hell, the Wall Street Journal even jumped on this. And they, needless to say, so did CNN, MSNBC, and the rest. And they all just immediately accepted this is what happened uh, before any of the actual facts were known. You want to know how you can spot an anti-Semite? It's very, very easy, folks. And I'm not here to defend one side or the other. I'm just here to defend the truth. But it's pretty easy to spot an anti-Semite. Look for people that will accept without question any propaganda coming from Hamas or inside of Palestine. And those same people will doubt any and all news coming from Israel. That's a good sign. I ask you, does anyone with an ounce of common sense believe that Israel would intentionally target a hospital in Gaza when they're surrounded by people that want them all dead? If you answered yes to that question, I think Israel would do that, then that's a sign that you might be, if not anti-Semitic, certainly not very intelligent. Steve Hook on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that.
reason I got vaccinated is because Chris Hipkins, the Minister for COVID-19 Response, wrote me a letter asking me to, and I thought, well, he's a Minister for the Crown, so I've basically been asked by the Queen. I can't say no to that. But I think it's a shame some people have seen uh, being against this vaccine as part of anti-government sentiment. One of the reasons I believe in freedom is that living in a free society means that science and technology can come to our aid, make our lives better, safer and more comfortable. I think it's fantastic. The same business that gave us Viagra through the miracles of science and capitalism has developed in record time a vaccine that solves one of the world's most pressing problems. I've read the material people have sent me about how people are dying and it's not really a vaccine and it doesn't work and so on. Let's be really clear. Hundreds of millions of people have had this vaccine. It reduces transmission. It reduces hospitalization. It reduces death from COVID-19. Those are the facts. If you don't want it, you don't have to do it. But as someone who enjoys living in a free society, who loves science and technology, and wants to get out of all the other restrictions governments are imposing as a result of this virus, vaccination makes an enormous amount of sense to me. I want the bullshit! David Seymour has met with some of the so-called leadership of this um, protest. Do you think that emboldens the protesters and do you think it's a responsible thing to do? No, I don't think it was a responsible thing to do for a party that purports to be the champion of law and order or indeed uh, businesses to meet with those who are obstructing Wellingtonians from going about their everyday lives, bullying and harassing people who are trying to go to school or work. Hey, everything's been really good. Yeah, and people are behaving themselves. Yep, everything's looking really good from what we've seen. Yeah, caring for each other. The vibe is very, is very nice. Bullying and harassing people who are trying to go to school or work. I trusted the government and then I was forced to, to take this because I was worried of losing my job. If we weren't coerced and brainwashed into getting these vaccines, he could still be alive. If we weren't forced into making a choice between our jobs, incomes and livelihoods, he could still be alive. Bullying and harassing people. If you want summer, if you want to go to bars and restaurants, get vaccinated. If you want to get a haircut, get vaccinated. Bullying and harassing people. If you want to go to a concert or a festival, get vaccinated. If you want to go to a gym or a sports event, get vaccinated. Obstructing Wellingtonians from going about their everyday lives. If you are not vaccinated, there will be everyday things you will miss out on. You're listening to Grant Edwards, 88.1 FM, The Wireless, The World at Five. An urgent note to call my sister, one of my sisters in South Africa. And I found out when I made that call that my stepsister's wife had just died suddenly. And of course, you know, my family doesn't want to talk about vaccines and she had, um, she had health issues. And I'm just going to leave it there because, you know, of, of personal privacy. But I'm just going to say to you that um, I now, there's nobody that I know that hasn't lost a family member or a friend and multiple uh, family members. People are dying all around us. And they're passing it off as heart attack. They're passing it off as cancer. They're passing it off as, you know, an autoimmune disease or an infection or whatever. But we have never seen so many people dying. And right, I, let me I mean, ask you, that for me is the truth. Right. So, so let me ask you this. 
the ratio of the number of people that you know in your family circle or friends or whatever, the number of people that you know who died from COVID versus the number of people that you know died from the COVID vaccine. What do you think that that ratio is? Is that two to one, 10 to one, three to one, one to oh, one? No. Uh, it, you know, um, the, you know, the thing is, Steve, only one person that I love died from COVID. Only one. And I'm, I know at least 20 people who've died from the vaccines. So it's 20 to one. I mean, just in my personal anecdote, okay. yes. That's what All I right. So, you. so you're so so you're a former sixty Minutes correspondent. Yep. What? Why can't you call up sixty Minutes and say, "Look, in my personal experience, it's twenty to one vaccine killed versus COVID killed." How come you guys aren't writing running a story on this? You know, Steve. It's funny that you ask me that question. You're listening to Grant Edwards, 88.1 FM, The Wireless, The World at Five. Do you support cutting benefits to solo parents who don't vaccinate their children? Yes, I do. Why? Um, Because it's about a notion of rights and responsibilities. If you want to be part of New Zealand and civil society, you have certain inalienable rights, but you also have responsibilities to actually for the collective and and helping the collective of New Zealand. Collective and, and helping the collective of New Zealand to actually for the collective and, and helping the collective of New Zealand. Responsibilities to actually for the collective and, and helping the collective of New Zealand. Responsibilities to actually for the collective and, and helping the collective of New Zealand. Responsibilities to actually for the collective and, and helping the collective of New Zealand. Why just target solo parents and probably solo mums really if we're talking about it? Should that it's be extended? Should it should it be extended to cutting working for families benefits? It, it, yeah, it should. Yeah, it should. All of these people were kept out of the all conversation. I, all I can comment And you were there. wanting me to sign on to a, a, a social contract where the scientific method isn't being used. Oh, I'm not interested in medical pedigree. I'm interested in medical consensus. People who are highly intelligent tend to go and get a lot of degrees. Those people have spent so many years in institutions to get those degrees that they have developed a trust and confidence in not only the educational institutions, but those that support them, which are largely government bodies. And so they start from the place of, if it's told by the university, by the government, it's probably gonna be true. What I've learned about science is that it's really imagined, they're looking at like a fragment of the world and it's all they see, it's all they're looking at. The world, they don't see the world. So I think that there's a disconnect between people who are smart and have lots of degrees with actual reality, with the lived experience of nature, of life, that you don't see with people who are actually working with their hands outdoors all of the time. A mass formation typically emerges in a society when very specific conditions are met. First and for all, the most central condition is a major part of the population needs to feel lonely. say the very rules to keep people safe from the virus are doing great damage when it comes to anxiety, depression, and even suicide. And now everyone is suffering, but children are particularly at The real pandemic here is the psychological warfare that's being waged on every single human being. See, if you take a human being and you put them in a chronic fear state, and you couple that with human isolation, what happens, they psychologically decompensate and live in such emotional pain that they will gravitate in an irrational way to anything that you promise them 
will alleviate that pain. Once people feel disconnected from their environment, they will typically start to experience a lack of meaning making in life. And under these conditions, if a narrative is distributed through the mass media, indicating an object of anxiety and a strategy to deal with this object of anxiety, they suddenly punk, connect to one small object of fear, for instance the coronavirus, and afterwards people don't feel lonely anymore, they feel connected again. new kind of social bond is highly problematic just because the connections between the individuals even deteriorate more and the bond between the individual and the collective becomes stronger and stronger and stronger which make them willing to sacrifice everything for the collective its health its wealth the future of its children everything something else that is really characteristic of individuals in mass formation is that they become radically intolerant for dissonant voices the people who are not getting vaccines, it's time to start shaming them. What else? Or leave them behind. Vaccinated person having a heart attack? Yes, come right on in. We'll take care of you. Unvaccinated guy? Rest in peace, Wheezy. We have to stop coddling the morons who will not get the shot. Get away from Put it me. on. Does it bother anybody else that she doesn't have to wear a mask that we all do? When are we going to stop putting up with the idiots in this country? You're a schmuck for not wearing a mask. And just say it's mandatory to get vaccinated. Screw your freedom. People who do not go along with the masses are stigmatized and in the end, the masses are inclined to destroy the people who do not go along with them. And they do so as if it is an ethical duty to do so. Getting good people to do bad things, harmful things, while thinking they're good things, it's a dangerous place to be because it looks great. You feel great while you're being used. They will sacrifice themselves and they see it as a virtue because it demonstrates their complete obedience to the cult, to the group, to perform ritualistic behavior which causes them harm. One of the most clear illustrations of this was when the leaders of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union were sentenced to death, often tortured to death. They did not object. They said things like, if this helps the Communist Party, it's my pleasure to do it. That's something that was observed in all major examples of mass formation in history. It's not easy to define the word collectivism in a few sentences because there are so many aspects to it. But it is easy enough to recognize a few of the major aspects, and you'll recognize it. One of the major aspects of collectivism is that it's based on the principle that the individual must be sacrificed, if necessary, for the greater good of the greater number. You'll find that under all forms of collectivism, whether it be Nazism, Communism, Fascism, Socialism, or Neoconism, or whatever you want to do, all of these forms of collectivism have that fundamental uh, philosophy or ideology beneath it. Now, that sounds pretty good to many people. It sounded good to me when I was in school and learning about the greater good of the greater number. After all, uh, we've been taught that we live in a democracy and therefore the majority should rule and all of these things which sound very good if you don't probe too deeply. 
And uh, so many people think that that's a good concept, but it's a terrible concept when you, when you follow it to its roots. Because you see, there's no such thing as a group. A group doesn't really exist. It's, it's all in the mind. Uh, the, the word group is an abstraction. It, it symbolizes in our minds the concept of many individuals. But group does not exist by itself. You cannot touch a group. You can touch individuals only. It's similar to the concept of the word forest. You can look at a forest, you say, well, I'm looking at a forest, but you're not. You're looking at trees. They're only trees. And so the word forest is this abstraction for the concept of many trees. And the same thing is true in social structures. The word group is a very deceptive word. We think that the group somehow has rights. Well, since there is no such thing as a group, we're really dealing with the concept of of many individuals having somehow more rights than uh, than a smaller group of individuals. And so uh, that really, if you follow it all the way to its core, is a question of mathematics. Uh, collective is, is based on the substance uh, that uh, three people um, really have the right to tell two people what to do regardless, because there's three against two. And once you boil it down to the issue of mathematics, it falls apart, because um, Human rights are not based on mathematics. Uh, I know we don't have time for a lot of this, but something that just occurred to me this morning when I was thinking about this concept. Uh, they say that the uh, the greater good of the greater number is is accomplished by giving the larger number the right to dictate to the smaller number. But when you think it through, it's just the opposite. Let's suppose that you had uh, uh, four different elements in society. You had a group called uh, red, a group called green, a group that's blue, and then a smaller group that are purple. The red, green, and blue represent different classes or groups of society, and the purple ones are the administrators, the government officials, the police, the courts, and all of the bureaucrats and the politicians that are going to regulate this great society. So you say, well, a group... Uh, the first two groups, red and green, uh, decide to take all the property away from blue. And that's certainly for the greatest good of the greater number, because red and green is a greater number than blue. So if that's your point, and finally, the greater good of society has been served in that uh, equation. But now the next time around, uh, green and blue decide to take away the property of red. And you say, well, in that instance also, the greater good of the greater number has been served. And then finally, to round it out, you get, uh, uh, red, what did they do, red and green, green and blue. Well, blue and red then get together and take away the property of green. And here again, uh, the greater good of the greater number has been served. But when you stand back and look at the whole process, uh, all of the groups have been plundered by the others. And you might say, well, it all evens out, doesn't it? No, it doesn't, because there's a fourth group, the purple. And every time there's a plundering action going on, the purple wind up with a pretty good share of the action just for their administrative services. And so when you follow it all the way through at the end of this process, all of society has been damaged by this greater good for the greater number concept, you see. The only greater good for the greater number really comes from the concept of individualism. When you deny the majority to, to take away the rights or the property of the minority, if you hold up the individual as the supreme element in society instead of the group, under that philosophy, under that ideology, now you do actually have the greatest good for the greatest number. These injections were unleashed under the emergency use authorization. 
Emergency use authorization is really only legally valid if there's no other treatment currently available. And that is a lie as well. Government decrees today continue to forbid doctors to prescribe life-saving, fully approved FDA medicines. They must follow government-dictated protocols, and those continue to kill. There are quite a few drugs that have been used for decades for all kinds of other ailments. And the doctors have tested out with COVID patients, and they worked. They save lives. I've interviewed Vladimir Zelenko, who just died recently. He himself saved 7,000 people. He lost three patients, only three. No agency, no public health agency can match that. What they have done, actually, is forbid doctors from using these drugs. They forbade hospitals. I had seven COVID patients, including a 31-year-old woman. I was not allowed to treat these people. I had to stand by idly. I had to stand by idly watching these people die. I actually knew someone and I was working as an estate agent and there was a guy who left working as an estate agent because he realized he could make just as much money off of the benefit system being at home with his three kids as he could being at work. It's like if we're going to reward people for doing nothing, they're gonna do nothing, then they're going to do nothing. For all those who don't have themselves and their children vaccinated with every vaccine on the official schedule, this is a policy that could accurately be then called a no-jab, no-income-at-all policy. Here's Chris Luxon on The Morning Report saying just that. Do you support cutting benefits to solo parents who don't vaccinate their children? Yes, I do. Why? Um, because it's about a notion of rights and responsibilities. If you want to be part of New Zealand and civil society, you have certain inalienable rights, but you also have responsibilities to actually for the collective and, and helping the collective abilities to actually for the collective and, and helping the collective of New Zealand and helping the collective of New Zealand and helping the collective of New Zealand. Why just target solo parents and probably solo mums, really, if we're talking about it? Should that it's be extended? Should it, should it be extended to cutting working for families benefits? This is a plan that was agreed to by 179 nations. It's called the Agenda for the 21st Century. It's a totalitarian state being developed right now all over the world. It is the inventory and control plan. Inventory and control of all land, all water, all minerals, all plants, all animals, all construction, all means of production, all food, all energy, all information, and all human beings in the world. And this is a plan that was agreed to by 179 nations back in 1992. It's a United Nations plan. It's called the Agenda for the 21st Century. And so many of us around the world think that um, well, sustainable development, it just sounds so great. Isn't it about recycling and creative reuse and, uh, and creating energy and food resources for everyone? And the answer is no. 
It really is not. It's about moving populations into city centers, concentrated city centers, and clearing them out of the rural areas. All systems have to be brought into harmony in order to control them all. Because when systems don't meet, when they're, when they're out of balance or not in sync with one another, they can't be controlled centrally. And the goal of Agenda 21 is one world government and total control from a central unit. Every nation that signed on to Agenda 21 has its, uh, its local Agenda 21 plan. People in the United States are completely unaware of this. If I go out and talk about this, the United States press will attacks me and calls me which is it's totally ridiculous. It is a but it's not a theory. It's a fact. The three pillars of United Nations Agenda 21 are economy, ecology, and equity, the three E's. And everyone sort of thinks that they know what that means, the idea of social equity. It must mean that, well, everyone's going to have access to clean water and clean air, and uh, no one's uh, property is going to be used as a dumping ground because they are at a poverty level. But really what social equity is about is about impoverishing huge portions of the population and bringing down uh, develop the developed nations Everything that we're looking at now is destined to collapse our economies. It's a totalitarian state to being developed right now all over the world. And what major corporations want in this development is to be able to, uh, to have move, full movement of, of, uh, of workers without borders or boundaries, to be able to move their goods through without regulations, and to reduce wages. And so this is the goal. So this is what you find with social equity. And of course, economy and uh, ecology is about, these are the three circles, economy, ecology, and social equity. And where they meet in the center is balance. But really that balance is a communitarian balance. So it's not balance of well-being of the people. What it is is it's a balance for corporations so that they can exploit and control and have populations in an area in tightly packed, dense areas so that they can be surveilled and managed. And this is what that balance looks like as far as the development of a totalitarian state is. The mainstream media is owned by five major corporations and you're not going to get this information from the mainstream press. So you need to be your own press. You need to educate yourself. You need to get out there and educate your neighbors, your community, your real community. You need to help your children understand that they're being indoctrinated from pre-kindergarten to post-graduate school. All of us have a responsibility to ourselves and to others. This is true community, to work for personal freedom. And always remember that even though we work as a group, if we do work as a group, we're all individuals in those groups. And we answer only to ourselves. And this is essential. It's essential as, as, as free human beings, this is what we are. We are free and we need to continue to be free. And I do believe that we will win, but we have to become aware that there is a fight and then make our friends and our neighbors and our community aware as well and work together.
more print now. Freedom of the press is about your right to know. It's about your right to be informed. Today, there are real threats to press freedom. And your right to know about the world around us. We must protect our right to know, no matter what kind of news is important to you. Before it's too late, understand the threats. Protectpressfreedom.org. We had a meeting at the MI6 office. Unfortunately, I can't disclose all the information. It's a matter of state affairs. Autumn 2020. Ukrainian media accidentally, or maybe not, learned about Zelensky's secret meeting with Richard Moore, the head of MI6. Not just anywhere, but at the headquarters of British Intelligence Service. According to the president, the meeting was about protecting Ukraine's sovereignty. Everyone understands. The MI6 office gave the president of Ukraine a precise directive. The thing is, after the Maidan in 2014, there are quite a lot of Ukrainian opposition media. Obviously, they were preventing the creation of an image of Russia as an enemy to Western countries. It was decided to end the dissenters with Zelensky's hands. And to prevent the president from getting bored and to help him practice English, he was surrounded by British security. This was in the spring of 2022, in the midst of war in Bucha. Look at these scenes. Do you see a patch on the sleeve of one of the guys near Zelensky? The Ukrainian flag is upside down. A local would have been shot on the spot for this. But this guy is okay. Do you know why? Because he has the right to. He is a foreigner, like everyone else around Zelensky. In fact, judging by the pronunciation, they're British. As we can see, Zelensky's security team consists of Brits. Quite marvelous, because we have the so-called Ninth Administration, the President's security, with 1,800 professional military guys, special forces, and combat swimmers. Well, not surprising. Firstly, UK intelligence services most likely helped Zelensky with the theatrical staging in Bucha. Secondly, the British follow every step of their agent, even during the meeting with the Pope. Oh, this episode deserves special attention. It seemed to me like a meeting between a priest and a devil. Judge for yourselves. Zelensky went to the Vatican in a black sweatshirt with the emblem of the UNO, Ukrainian Nationalist Organization. He gave the Pope an icon with a black silhouette instead of Christ which is outright Satanism, according to church canons. He plopped into a chair before the host. For those unaware, this is a gross violation of etiquette. And he didn't pay much attention to Pope Francis's peaceful initiatives. Italians considered that rude. I'm sure this whole comedy was a distraction. The central communication of Zelensky took place not in the Pope's office, but in the next room, without the involvement of Pope Francis, but with the participation of the Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Holy See, Archbishop Paul Richard Gallagher, a native Brit whose cardinals are conducting powerful propaganda in Ukraine. The Ukrainian president spoke with Gallagher for almost an hour and a half. But the main detail is that the head of MI6, Richard Moore, was also present at the meeting in the Vatican. Maybe this fact explains the record-breaking motorcade of the leader of independent Ukraine, over 20 cars. A video went viral of a TikTok influencer describing her encounter with a man on the streets of San Francisco. And I just got groceries, I'm walking out of the store, and this guy is walking past me and says, move you stupid and he spits in my face, spits all over my face. 
And then I say, excuse me, did you just spit in my face? And he says, move or I'll rape you. There's also people everywhere and everyone's just walking by because they're like, I can't handle something else in San Francisco. It's always something else. I don't even know why I'm posting this. That's also why it is, at this point, very hard for me to have sympathy for the typical San Francisco resident who has this kind of typical San Francisco experience. These are, in almost every case, liberals who vote for leftist candidates who promise to make their communities less safe. They vote for this. They choose it. They literally ask for it. And then they get what they asked for. My capacity for pity has, I confess, limits. And residents of San Francisco live outside of those limits at this point. Unfortunately, I think this is just the beginning. Uh, yes. So I've, lear- I've learned when people tell you what they're going to do, don't ignore them. So when the UN and Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab tell you that they've got a UN 2030 plan with uh, sustainable development goals, I think there are 17 or 21 of them, and every one of them says, you won't be traveling, you won't have a private car, we won't be using international shipping to move goods around, uh, there won't be any um, flights except military or perhaps very rich people, uh, you'll be, you won't own anything and you'll be happy, you probably won't live in your own house, you'll be using much less uh, energy for everything, including heating, manufactured goods, and so on. When they tell you that, you should assume that they're serious about it. And so I think yes. COVID... I think COVID has been part one of a multi-act play that's going to take 10 years that will destroy the liberal democracies completely. We've already, if you think living in a democracy, now ask yourself who you could vote for that would change this. Because I don't think there's anyone you can vote for anywhere that would, is guaranteed things. So I don't have an answer, but I'm telling you, I think we're, we're sliding down through the gates of hell. I'm speaking out. There's nothing in it. To me, I've lost lots of money, all my friends. I'm away from my home and family. And I'm speaking out because as I close, I am absolutely sure what I've told. An almost identical betrayal happened around his 2017 promises to ban the use of 1080. He sounded so convincing that this toxic operation would be finished by his hand once he arrived in Parliament. He talked in specific terms about alternatives that would be used once he was elected. Examples of alternatives to 1080. And lengthy public addresses had people convinced that this time he was for real. 1080 is a very dangerous product. I want to make it very clear, we are going to put millions into finding an alternative. We'll stop it now. We're going to turn into an industry. We're going to pay people a trap, turn into a fur industry. We're going to do everything we can stop it as soon as we can. Even though Winston said he would have 1080 gone by lunchtime, to the heartbreak of so many who had trusted him, all they received in return for their trust was silence on the issue for Winston's entire term in office. You're listening to Grant Edwards, 88.1 FM, The Wireless, The World at Five. Mr. Secretary, thanks for being here. I want to tap your expertise for a moment. Uh, give, give me um, uh, give me your best estimate, just an estimate I know, uh, of, of uh, uh, how soon you think the United States of America will be carbon neutral. So uh, I think, according to the climate scientists around the world and certainly the cutting-edge scientists that we need to rely on here in the U.S., we've got to get carbon neutral by 2050, and I'm very comfortable with that target, and I think that's the appropriate by 20, target. Fi- by 2050. Which is only 27 years. That is not a long time away. And, and how much will that cost? 
So the cost that I focus on even more is all the costs no, that the are going to happen cost. if we don't get our act together. How much will it cost to get us carbon neutral? It's going to cost trillions of dollars, and it'll cost tens of trillions of dollars if how, we don't get our act together. How many trillions? I don't have the estimate or the numbers in front of me. I've seen a variety of different estimates, but it's a large amount. Fundamentally transforming our energy economy tell me the is a big deal. You, tell me the estimates that you've seen. I don't have those numbers right on hand. So, so you're advocating that we become carbon neutral, but you don't know how much it's going to cost. So there's an awful lot of estimates out there. It depends yeah, on technology you're the, you're improvement the and other kinds of things. You're the expert. I know, I know with how much it's going to cost. I know with the certainty of all the experts I've spoken about, it's cheaper to get our act together than it is to not get our act together on climate okay. change. Then tell me the cost versus orders of the magnitude. cost that we, if we don't do it. I think it's orders of magnitude different. If we I don't get that, our act together, you, it's you don't You don't have a cost? You want us to get there, but you can't tell the American taxpayer how much it's going to cost? Is that your testimony? It's going to save us money, and there's a lot of jobs. Well, how do we know if you don't know how much it's going to cost? Uh, I'd be happy to pull up the latest numbers that I've seen. How about $50 trillion? Is that right? It's going to cost trillions of dollars. There's no doubt about it. Okay. If we spend trillions of dollars and we achieve... I, some of your colleagues estimate 50 trade, and it disappoints me that you're not willing to give the estimates. I, I, don't, I, I hope you're not telling me you have no idea how much it's going to cost. That creates a whole new host of problems. But, but uh, if it costs $50 trillion, as some of your colleagues have testified, to become carbon neutral by 2050, and I'm all for carbon neutrality, by the way, how much is that going to lower world temperatures? Or how much is that going to reduce the increase in world temperatures? So every country around the world needs to get its act together. Our emissions are about 13% of global emissions. Yeah, but if right you could now. answer my question, if we spend $50 trillion to become carbon neutral in the United States of America by 2050, you're the Deputy Secretary of Energy. Give me your estimate of how much that is going to reduce world temperatures. So, so first of all, it's a net cost. Um, it's what uh, benefits we're having from getting our act together and reducing all of those climate benefits. We're seeing. Let me ask again. Maybe I'm being. Right maybe I'm not being clear. If we spent fifty trillion dollars to become carbon neutral by two thousand and fifty in the United States of America, how? How much is that going to reduce world temperatures? This is a global problem. So we need to reduce our emissions and we need to do everything we can. How much, if we do our part, countries. is it going to reduce so world temperatures? So we're 13 percent of global emissions. You don't know, right do you? You don't know, do you? You can do the math. We need to. You don't know, do you, Mr. Secretary? So we're 13 percent of if global you know, emissions. If you know, why won't you we tell went, me? If we went to zero, that would be 13 percent. You don't know, do you? You just want us to spend $50 trillion dollars. And you don't have the slightest idea whether it's going to reduce world temperatures. Now, I'm all for carbon neutrality, but you're the deputy secretary of the Department of Energy, and you're advocating we spend trillions of dollars to seek carbon neutrality, and you can't, and this isn't your money or my money, it's taxpayer money, and you can't tell me how much it's going to lower world temperatures? There or you won't tell me? You know, but you won't? In my heart of hearts, there is no way the world gets its act together on climate change unless the U.S. leads. Tell me how much it's the going US to reduce. You, you can't tell me. Either that or you won't. In February 2020, a further article was published explaining that this monstrous abortion bill was very much Winston Peters' bill, the very same man who had been elected on the pro-life vote. 
It explained the truth of how, after saying he would not remove abortion from the Crimes Act, that he was then instrumental in doing just that. I'll read from the article so as not to run the risk of putting it into my own words. Ahead of the 2017 New Zealand election, Winston Peters cornered the values and pro-life vote, making it clear to voters that his New Zealand First Party would not decriminalise abortion, introduce an extreme abortion law allowing abortion up to birth, and that they would support a change to the law to state that the unborn child has a right to life, to improve informed consent during the abortion process, and to implement parental notification for girls aged 15 and under seeking abortions. This reinforced a clear, long-standing position which had been communicated to voters over a number of years. Once in government, Winston Peters has joined his coalition partner in bringing forward a bill to introduce the most extreme abortion legislation in the world, which would allow abortion de facto on demand for any reason up to birth to the New Zealand Parliament. This bill is very much his bill. He had his MP, Tracy Martin, work on co-writing the bill along with the Justice Minister over an eight-month period. Then his cabinet, in which he is the number two ranked minister, signed off on the bill, a bill which would see the establishment of the most extreme abortion law in the world. This is a bill so barbaric that it wouldn't even see a few dollars spent to anaesthetise a full-term baby at the point of his or her violent life-ending procedure. In fact, a supplementary order was raised to allow a baby up to 40 weeks gestation some pain relief, as it is a particularly brutal procedure for the baby. But the self-proclaimed pro-life Winston even voted no to that, with his entire party following suit. No to a few dollars and a few minutes to prevent the indisputable pain that a fully formed baby would suffer as a result of this procedure. The public, as well as the medical community, had made their position clear many times, such as in this Curia poll, that they did not support any legislation that supported the availability of abortions based on issues such as sex selection. In March 2020, Right to Life published another article on the issue, desperately trying to raise the alarm by notifying people that the New Zealand government was now rushing the extreme legislation into law while the country was distracted with the pandemic. Yes, the preparations were all done just prior to the fake pandemic, ready to roll it on through at the height of the pandemic chaos. The final sitting on the committee stage and the bill's third and final reading were pushed through Parliament on the same day, which just happened to be the day before our first lockdown on March 25, 2020. This article went on to describe some of the more harrowing aspects of the legislation proposed in the bill such as Abortion will now be available de facto on demand for any reason up to birth. Sex selective abortion will be legalised. The current 20-week limit for disability selective abortion will be scrapped and abortion will be available up to birth for disabilities including cleft lip, club foot and Down syndrome. There will be no requirement that a doctor be involved with providing an abortion. There will be no legal requirement that babies born alive after a failed abortion are given medical support. There will be no legal requirement that pain relief be given to babies being aborted between 20 weeks and birth. There will be no legal restrictions on controversial methods of abortion such as intact dilation and extraction abortions, also known as partial birth abortions, a procedure frequently used in late-term abortion. 
Apologies, but this is something I cannot bring myself to read the definition of, so I'll just leave it on the screen. What is partial birth abortion? Partial birth abortion, PBA, is the term Congress has used to describe a procedure that crosses the line from abortion to infanticide. The doctor delivers a substantial portion of the living child outside his mother's body, the entire head in a head-first delivery or the trunk past the navel in a feet-first delivery, then kills the child by crushing his skull or removing his brain by suction. Why would anyone use this procedure? Some abortion doctors use PBA in the middle and last months of pregnancy, when dismembering a child becomes more difficult due to the child's stronger bones and ligaments. So, as it explains here, dismembering is the preferred method, but once the baby is much further along in gestation, the partial birth method becomes the common option. Please understand that this can be a full-term baby, and remember, our government voted to deny that baby any anaesthetic at that point. Another element mentioned in this article was that the Greens claimed to have misunderstood and bungled the vote around the safe spaces and free speech component of the bill, which then, all by unfortunate coincidence apparently, resulted in the criminalising of any offering of advice, counselling or help outside the clinic. As no requirement for counselling exists in the bill, this means that a woman with a full-term baby could attend a clinic and have the baby terminated without ever hearing from anyone at any stage along the process who may try to provide her with an alternative course of action. This article also went on to mention that a petition had been lodged with over 60,000 signatures. This citizen's petition was lodged through citizengo.org a few weeks prior to the bill's final sign-off. It called on Winston Peters to withdraw the bill as he was the one with the authority to do so. Even though the petition received 65,000 signatures, needless to say, Winston did not withdraw the bill. Actually, I'd go as far as to speculate that he may have relied on the fact that Jacinda was Prime Minister and all blame would be placed on her, for which she also deserves, of course, but also perhaps because they knew she was going to be out of here post-COVID, but that Winston was going to be repackaged and sent back in. So he needed to come out looking like his hands were at least a little bit clean. Pro-choice always makes sense to me because I don't like people telling me what to do. And I was just like, it's your body. Who the f am I to tell you what to do with your body? So that always made sense, all right? However, I still think you're killing a baby. See? That's where it gets weird. It's not a baby yet. That would be like if I was making a cake and I poured some batter in a pan and I put it in the oven and then five minutes later you came by and you grabbed the pan, you threw it across the floor and I went, what the f***? He just ruined my birthday cake. And then you were like, well, that wasn't a cake yet. It's like, well, it would have been. If you didn't do what you just did, there would have been a cake in 50 minutes. Something happened to that cake. You cake murder son of a He's the best. Have you have you seen the, the routine that he did on uh, the WNBA there? And he's like, ah, there are not enough people at WNBA games. Dick, well, f*** you. You're 50% of the population. Get your asses out in the stands. I don't know if you're aware. There's a court case going on. I believe it's in South Africa. Anyway, the point being is this is a court case against what we've gone through, that 
medical emergency that I daren't say too much about in case I get another YouTube strike. You know how these things work. So I don't want to upset anybody. But that event that happened three years ago and in which the, uh, the response from the people I've just mentioned, those think tanks, was to mandate certain things and, and really push a certain substance that most people felt obliged to take or, and in parts of the world forced to take. Well, there's a court case there that's going to make all the facts of that come out and I think when the court case happens and these facts, the true facts, not the nonsense that we've been told, but the actual true facts that most of us are sort of gathered now, comes out in the open and we reveal how governments, and particularly our government, has been complicit in pushing a, a completely erroneous um, narrative, one that they knew was... Um, nefarious in fact and not, uh, and detrimental to the people when this court case happens i honestly believe that the government and parliament and the uh, the prime minister's office these corporations these businesses because that's what they are you only have to look at dun and bradstreet to realize that the government and the parliament and the and the prime minister's office is is actually a trading business, a business there, a corporation, to make money, that's their sole purpose, um, that uh, when this court case comes out, we'll find out this, this so-called benevolent and kind government, sorry, business, corporation, um, when it hits the fan and it all comes out, I think the government, the parliament and the prime minister's office are finished. I think it's finished because once the people actually know and realize what has happened to them by the people they've apparently voted in to help them and guide them and administer them is actually been something that has been very detrimental and nefarious and um, almost almost. Well, I'm trying to think of words which 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 would uh, describe this without uh, causing too much uh, ruckus I suppose but sort of pure evil in a way if you like you know the little man with the horns and the red face and his little trident thing that type of uh, stuff sadistic you could say anyway when it all comes out and the Parliament folds what's left well then all that's left in theory is the king the king would have to step in wouldn't he the one that we're going to crown the one who's Oath. We don't know what his allegiance are. The one that has been, up until extremely recently, so he says, involved with the very people who've been telling the government to give us the you-know-what. So, so do we want him, when the thing hits the fan, do we want him to actually then step in and, and, and rule us? Because if we don't, we have the power not to not to have him because in the old days go back far enough we used to choose our leaders we used to choose the king it wasn't the sort of hereditary nonsense that we've we've been uh, led to believe it is it was it was uh, the choice it was chosen somebody who was an appropriate person not somebody who's a bit mealy-mouthed and won't tell us what his allegiances are or won't quite tell us what the oath is and none of that
So I'm indebted to remind us just what we can do here, thanks to David, who actually sent me a letter, an actual physical letter, because he didn't trust that uh, email and electronic uh, technology and digital stuff isn't being read. He's pretty convinced that everything is being read or scanned for keywords, so he sent me a letter, and well done for you for working out where I was. And just to end with, he just rem wanted to remind me, of course, that there is, of course, uh, a clause, a way out of all of this if we don't want what is happening. We, the sovereign people. And he reminded me of lawful rebellion. And I just want to read what has been written here. You're right under Magna Carta. Under Article 61 of Magna Carta 1215, the founding document of the Constitution, we have a right to enter into lawful rebellion if we feel that we are being governed unjustly. Contrary to common belief, our sovereign and her government are only there to govern us and not to rule us. And this must be done within the constraint of our common law and the freedoms asserted to us by such law. Nothing can become law in this country if it falls outside of this simple constraint. Article 61 shows quite clearly who really holds the power in this country. That being, quite simply, is us the people. We have sovereignty, not any parliament, and nor can this be taken away by any parliament who claim to have taken the people's sovereignty. So there you go, Article 61, it's in our constitution, and the constitution is there for us against and to protect us against the parliament and the, the sovereign or the king. We have sovereignty. So if we find ourselves in this situation that the government collapses and King Charles, who's yet to tell us his oath and what he really means, and we only look and see the things he has done and the people that he's been associating with and the acts, the new acts that he suddenly decided is going to be good for us, i.e. the precision breeding, then maybe when this all happens, he isn't necessarily the right person to be our king. Just a thought. I mean, it's almost there, isn't it? It's almost there because when you go down in the street and you look for the bunting and you look for the flag and you look for the sense that people are actually embracing this man to be our sovereign, it's very difficult to find it. Isn't I'll it? never forget this conversation. He says, hey, Dad, one of my friends was telling me about his trust fund. What does my trust fund look like? And I oh. said, here's how yours works. If mom and I get run over by a truck, you're good till you finish high school because it doesn't look like you're going to college. He said, well, what do you mean? Trust only pays till you finish college. And it's it's done. He says, what do you mean it's done? I said, it means no more checks. And I said to him, the dead bird under the nest never learns how to fly. <laughs> and he said, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> what it means is you should start thinking about taking advantage of this now because you're not. I don't know what's going to happen to you. You're not even going to finish high school here. He knuckled down. He started getting into what he was into. Eventually became an electrical engineer. He was at the top of his class. You're listening to Grant Edwards. 88.1 FM. The Wireless. The World at Five. Smart people. They're, they know what they're doing. We have, they're at the top of their game. We have somebody that's not at the top of his game. Never was at the top of a game. Never was. We have a guy who's a dumb son of a bitch, and to allow this to happen. 
With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to TNTradio.live. TNT Radio News. For TNT, this is James O'Neill. The Senate's border Ukraine package, unveiled recently, is facing significant hurdles due to growing resistance from both Senate and House Republicans. Revealed on the evening of February 4th, the package's total cost is approximately $118 billion, with about $60 billion allocated for Ukraine and additional funds directed towards Israel, Taiwan, and U.S. border security. Initially, the package seemed likely to pass quickly through the Senate, with support from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. However, specific border security measures in the package, particularly the requirement for a border shutdown upon the entry of 5,000 illegal immigrants in a single day, have sparked strong opposition from conservative members. Additionally, Senate Republicans have expressed a need for more time to review the bill's details. At a recent closed-door Senate GOP meeting, McConnell advised senators to vote against a procedural motion set for Wednesday that would initiate debate on the bill. This development cast doubt on the future of this legislative proposal. Donald Trump spoke to radio host Dan Bongino. We let people in legally. They came in legally, but we had the best numbers. We had the best border uh, in the history of our country, actually. So uh, I didn't need a border bill. This bill is a disaster. This bill has 5,000 people a day potentially coming into our country. It's does it make sense? I don't know. This, <laughs> I thought it was a typo. An Arizona bill spearheaded by Republican House Majority Leader Leo Basucci aims to address the issue of forced organ harvesting in China and other designated foreign adversaries, including Russia, Iran, North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, Syria, and Hong Kong. Announced at a press conference in Phoenix on February 5th, HB 2504 specifically targets organ transplants sourced from these regions. The bill intends to prevent Arizona residents from unintentionally supporting forced organ harvesting through transplant tourism. This legislative move comes in response to reports of significantly shorter waiting times and lower costs for organ transplants in China compared to the U.S., where the wait can be one to three years. The bill highlights the plight of Falun Gong practitioners, Uyghurs, Tibetans, and House Christians in China who have been identified as primary victims of this practice under the Chinese Communist regime's crackdown on traditional spiritual beliefs. The recent attack in Clapham, southwest London, where a woman and her two daughters, aged eight and three, were injured by a corrosive substance, has brought attention to the increasing occurrence of such serious assaults in the UK. Authorities are actively searching for 35-year-old Abdullah Zaidi, who was suspected of carrying out the attack last Wednesday, which resulted in injuries of a total of 12 people. The mother, aged 31, is currently hospitalized, with injuries described as life-changing. According to data from Acid Survivors Trust International, a UK-based charity focused on documenting and raising awareness about acid attacks globally, the UK has reported the highest number of such attacks in comparison to other countries. Karolina Shino, a Ukrainian-born model with Japanese citizenship and the winner of the 2024 Miss Japan beauty pageant, has voluntarily given up her title, following revelations of her relationship with a married man. 
The Miss Japan Association announced on the website that they accepted Shino's resignation and apologized to all parties involved, including sponsors and judges, leaving the title vacant for the remainder of the year. Initially, Shino had claimed to her modeling agency that she ended the relationship upon discovering the man's marital status, but later admitted to continuing the relationship. Shino apologized on Instagram for the confusion and trouble caused by her actions. Notably, Shino was the first person of European origin to win the Miss Japan Grand Prix, a title meant to represent the pinnacle of beauty among Japanese women. We'll be back with another news break at the top of the next hour. This has been James O'Neill for TNT. For great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts, the TNT Shop is now open at TNTRadio.live. Prescription drug pricing points to corporate mountain. Freedom of the press is about your right to know. It's about your right to be informed. Today, there are real threats to press freedom. And your right to know about the world around us. We must protect our right to know, no matter what kind of news is important to you. Before it's too late, understand the threats. Protectpressfreedom.org. Now, another hour of the best of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and noughties. This, this is The Wireless. 